the two key local first responders at the Mott fire scene have both told us their professional conclusion is, based on best evidence and exclusion of all other possibilities, George Mott died by spontaneous human combustion. Weird. Very weird. Yeah. <laughs> this is something that is so bizarre, so nonsensical, so out of mainstream conventionality and orthodoxy. There really does appear to be a genuine Fortean mystery here. Yeah, I'm, just, I'm just baffled here. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and thank you, you should be baffled. Um, if you understand anything about the effects of fire under normal conditions on the human body, you must be baffled. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? Uh, this is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. Big, big thanks to our friend Ian for contributing the music to this installment of BOA Audio. We're going to try and mix it up a little more going forward and turn our attention to some of the songs contributed by the great BOA listeners out there who have been sending stuff in the last few weeks. Now, let's get down to business on this installment of the program because it is, no pun intended, a barn burner, my friends. After so many years of this program and just a myriad of conversations, we are finally going to explore the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. I have wanted to dive into this thing for years and found our guest this week, Larry Arnold, the world's foremost authority on SHC spontaneous human combustion, or as I like to call it, SpawnCom. Larry is seriously the best of the best. I think he's the lone voice in all of Esoterica really championing spontaneous human combustion. He's been doing it for three decades plus. As such, I really wanted to make this the most in-depth conversation we could possibly have on SHC. So we covered just a ton of ground over the course of this two-hour conversation. Let me touch on the big points. We're going to cover the earliest known cases of SpawnCom, the evolution of SHC research and public perception, and the renaissance of the phenomenon's interest in the 1970s. Along the way, we're also going to hear about some of the most famous cases of SpawnCom in paranormal history. For the folks who enjoy the stories, you're going to love these. Dr. John Irving, Mary Reeser, George Mott, Helen Conway, and the really crazy story of spontaneous human combustion survivor Jack Angel. That one will have you on the edge of your seat and truly creeped out, folks. But that's not all, because we're going to journey down a plethora of side roads, such as Larry's take on the skeptics. He's run into a ton of them over the last 30 years, since he is the main voice of SHC. He's been on all the different TV shows and battled these folks in a whole bunch of different venues. He's also going to talk about potential for a spontaneous human combustion media cover-up, why the debunker's wick effect theory does not stand up to experimentation, and some really mind-boggling stuff with regards to SHC trends that his research has uncovered. Really that's a lot of stuff, and those are the tent poles of this whole thing. It is massive, folks. 
I say at the beginning of the program, but I'm going to repeat it here. This one, my friends, is an instant BOA audio classic. It is a comprehensive interview that is going to enlighten all of you to a paranormal phenomenon that has existed on the periphery of esoterica for decades, if not centuries, and in recent times has been kept alive thanks to the tireless work of our guest, Larry Arnold, who is, of course, the author of Ablaze, The Mysterious Fires of Spontaneous Human Combustion. Wow, I'm excited. I can't wait to put this one out to you folks. This is amazing stuff. Gather around the campfire, my friends, or gather around the spontaneously combusting human, because we've got some wild stuff for you. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Larry Arnold, allow me to provide you with a little background on him. Larry Arnold was trained in the methodology of science with an undergraduate major in mechanical engineering. He later worked for the private sector in electrical engineering. He developed a burgeoning fascination with human consciousness potential and undertook a new province of study, the unexplained. In 1976, he founded Paris Science International, and as the director of that group, he combines his scientific background with investigating and describing the intriguing world of Fortiana, those unconventional subjects and weird events that fail to find acceptance, let alone explanation, within the boundaries of today's science. Larry is internationally recognized for his pioneering research in spontaneous human combustion. His website is www.parascience.com. Pretty simple, all one word, parascience.com. And, of course, he is the author of Ablaze, The Mysterious Fires of Spontaneous Human Combustion. Check him out. And with all that said, my friends, let's get down to business and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on June 10th, 2011. Larry Arnold talking about spontaneous human combustion on BOA Audio Season 6. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. And I'm going to say right now, I'm pretty sure that this episode is already going to be a classic edition of the program because this is a topic I have wanted to explore on BOA Audio for years and years and years, and we're finally getting the chance to do it. Our guest is, I think it's safe to say, the world's foremost authority on spontaneous human combustion, that classic mystery in the world of esoterica that really does not get enough attention anymore nowadays, although it used to be huge back in the day, and it's sort of fallen through the cracks in a big way. But thankfully, our guest here, Larry E. Arnold, is the man who has kept it afloat really for decades now. He's been looking at this thing. It looks like it's been about three decades. He's been involved with just about every paranormal TV show you can think of, folks. I'm talking about Unsolved Mysteries, The Unexplained, Sightings, Paranormal Borderline on the UPN. See, I didn't even know that one existed, so it must have been a short-lived program on the UPN. Uh, Science Mysteries for the BBC and Discovery. So he's done just countless uh, TV and radio appearances, and really, as I said, he's the foremost authority on spontaneous human combustion, and I want to explore this mystery for just a very, very long time, so I'm very excited to have him here on the program. We're going to really dig into SHC here with Larry E. Arnold. Welcome to the program, Larry. Really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you, Tim. Delighted to be with you, and we appreciate your gracious and uh, somewhat lengthy introduction. 
we do go back several decades with the subject. And in fact, one of the shows that you you didn't mention was That's Incredible back on hmm. ABC television back in 1980 and 81, which probably was really the first national exposure that this amazing subject received. Yeah, see, I was born in 79, so it's like before my time even. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even... before your time. Yeah, so. <laughs> Bless your young little heart. <laughs> Now, I guess, you know, we like to start out with a little bit of the bio, the background. You know, who is Larry E. Arnold? How did you stumble upon this mystery that is spontaneous human combustion? Well, Larry E. Arnold resides in South Central Pennsylvania for the the full span of this current life expression. Uh, We have a background and a long, lifelong interest in, in the sciences. Uh, Background in college was mechanical engineering. He worked in the electrical trade for a couple of years. And then got really interested in in um, broadening human consciousness, um, so-called new age endeavors, and Fortean phenomena. And regarding the last, uh, we found lots of people were back in the late 60s, early 70s, looking into ufology, looking into cryptozoology. In junior high school, we had read a book by Frank Edwards, a journalist, uh, in one chapter of Stranger Than Science by Mr. Edwards. He wrote about the Cinder Woman, a case of spontaneous human combustion or alleged spontaneous human combustion. And as we discovered, as we turned our attention to Fortiana, that lots of people, as we said, were looking into some of those mainstream um, mysteries, but nobody seemed to be really looking at the so-called um, Fortian mystery of spontaneous human combustion. So we decided to find out whether Frank Edwards, as a newspaper reporter, had had uh, reported that chapter in Stranger Than Science accurately, or whether he, you know, played loose with the facts. We went down to the Library of Congress and pulled up from its morgue copies of the St. Pete Times and the Tampa Tribune, and found out that what he wrote about the Riso case back in 1951 uh, was indeed a mainstream. Um, story in the summer of 1951 down there in the local press in, in West Central Florida. The Rizzo case had a number of mysteries to it, which we can explore with you and your you know, listeners as the evening ensues. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that launched us on, as what you correctly described, has become a career um, documenting this astonishing, fascinating, bizarre conundrum of people who can spontaneously combust in the absence of a known identifiable external ignition source. Now, I gotta, I gotta just ask here first, and I, and I don't mean to be rude or in, in any way, but I've noticed that you refer to yourself in the, I guess, first-person plural, the we. So, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure other people have noticed it by now in this, in this interview. So, I'm, I'm intrigued by this, and, and sort of want to find out that, so it doesn't keep rattling around in my brain what that's all about. You are correct. We do refer to ourselves in the first-person plural under almost all circumstances. Um, it is a form of expression that developed spontaneously, if you will, when you were in college, and it stuck with us for the decades that have ensued. It's comfortable for us to, to refer to ourselves personally in that uh, expression. Um, we came eventually to comprehend and understand that what developed naturally for us in the late 60s when we were at uh, Lafayette College studying engineering was that it's a way for us to express that we, in this physical form, manifesting and speaking to you by telephone, is just one expression of a larger soul entity, and it kind of links us with other aspects of ourselves that are coexisting in other dimensional realms. 
uh, probably some someday, once upon a time, most people will begin to, uh, once they come to that realization themselves, because this applies to everyone, uh, will probably start speaking of themselves in the first person plural too. It raises some interesting conundrums and problems, like when you book a, or try to book a, a seat on an airline, um, by telephone, the, the <laughs> agent wants to know how many seats we're requesting, and we say one. Yeah, but you're talking about we. Yeah, we understand that. We just need one seat. Well, you know, anyway, it sometimes poses um, problems, sometimes becomes quite amusing, And um, but you're very astute to notice that, and thanks for asking. Oh, great. I'm glad that, you know, like I said, I didn't mean, you know, I didn't mean to come off rude or anything like that, but it was certainly noticeable, and like I said, uh, if I noticed it, I'm sure the listeners did too, so we, we got that cleared up, straightened out. Very interesting, by the way. I find that to be a fascinating perspective. I, I don't discount it either, so... Probably, as you said, in the future, we'll, uh, you know, meet out to be more obvious than, than people think, I think. Okay, so let's let's dive into spontaneous human combustion, or I'm sure we'll end up calling it SHC as we go along. You know, I guess give people sort of the thumbnail definition sort of uh, of what this is so we can bring them up to speed. Because I'm sure there's some people in the audience who've heard of spontaneous human combustion but really haven't heard, you know, the full plethora of details exactly about what this is. Right, and it's a great place to start. Um, best to know exactly what we're talking about by defining the subject right up front, so we all are working from common ground and perspective here on out. Our defin- definition of spontaneous human combustion, SHC, or simply SpawnCom, uh, in this context is the phenomenon and process whereby a person can smoke, blister, or otherwise combust in the absence of contact with a known identifiable nearby external ignition source or burn agent. That is, the phenomenon occurs in the absence of contact with a flame, in the absence of presence of caustic chemicals, no radioactive material is identifiable, there is no contact or high amperage current, and there's no nearby identifiable radiant heat source. Those are the five basic means by which a human body is conventionally thought to be burned. If you can rule out those five characteristics, those five quantities at a fire scene, then by definition you have to consider the possibility that spontaneous human combustion is the cause of the event that is under investigation. Now, as you say, um, a lot of people, and believe us, there are naysayers about SpawnCom all over the place, and we've encountered many of them. Um, But by definition, um, when they say that SHC is impossible, nonsensical, a fairy tale, supernatural, and dismissible, um, by definition, if you've been, if you're a light-skinned Caucasian and you've been under a glowing hot summer sun for several hours without 60 sunblock, you're going to be an experiencer of spontaneous human combustion the next day because you will have blisters, which is a second-degree burn, or if you're um, less long exposed to ultraviolet radiation, you're going to have at least a first-degree burn, which is reddening of the skin. And yet you've not been in contact with nearby radiation or high amperage or radiant heat source or caustic chemicals or you've not certainly not had contact with an open flame. So by definition, what science calls a sunburn is also spontaneous combustion of human flesh. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. You know, in that context, you can't argue that SHC is impossible because it's happened to millions and millions of people millions and millions of times. We're going to dismiss that broad application of the concept of SHC for the rest of this conversation and stick to the more Fortean, the more esoteric, the more bizarre nature of the phenomenon. Nice. 
That's what I like to hear there, Larry. <laughs> um, now, what I was surprised by as I as I did my research and looked into SpawnCom, which I, I like that a lot, um, was that I, I, I sort of, as I said, you know, I was born in 79, so I kind of came up in the 80s. I, I always thought this was sort of like a part of the whole surge of paranormal in the 70s type of thing, and I'm sure it was in, in popularity, but I didn't realize that this thing goes back really long, long time. I mean, spontaneous human combustion, they had been talking about it for centuries, right? You're quite correct. Yeah, in the 17 and early 1800s, this was a, if you pardon the expression, a hotly debated subject within the mainstream medical community in Europe. Um, the French and the Germans, and in particular, and also some British physicians, you know, argued among themselves as to whether or not this phenomenon really did occur. The earliest case that we've been able to identify within the published medical literature dates back to the latter part of the 1400s, and we mentioned this in the second chapter of our book of Blaise. A, a, a nobleman, a knight named Philonus, was said to have been quaffing some spirituous liquor with some of his buddies, and suddenly <laughs> his buddies observed him to ex exhale flame and suddenly succumb in a blazing, you know, in a blaze. Yeah. And the physician concluded that this had to be a case of spontaneous combustion. What else could it have been um, based on the eyewitnesses and what they had to say about what happened to their you know, fellow colleague? It took an interesting twist in, in the early 1800s when the Germans were writing about this. They said that only French women uh, experienced spontaneous human combustion, while the, the French physician said that this was only a plague that um, afflicted German fraulines. Sounds like some kind of nationalistic like bar joke, yeah. Research, you know. <laughs> and it was, as we said, highly debated within the mainstream medical community until all about 1850 thereabouts when a German chemist named von Liebig came along and he decided once and for all to put the lie to SHC or to put it um, in, the, in the realm of, of true but bizarre. And Liebig's premise was that as he believed, all victims of so-called spontaneous human combustion were female, were elderly, were overweight, were alcoholics, that these poor, besotted, fat old women, French or German, um, drank themselves into a stupor and then ignited their fat, probably externally, but it was the amount of alcohol that had impregnated their body tissues that he believed was the source of the fuel, if you will, internal to the body that caused these cases of on occasion, humans being incinerated to powder in an environment that was otherwise largely or wholly devoid of what one would expect to find, fearsome fire, heat, and flame damage. So what von Liebig did was do an experiment. Bravo for him. Um, any good scientist should do this. He took some alcohol-impregnated tissue, tried to set it on fire and see if it would burn itself to powder. It did not. So von Liebig concluded that spontaneous human combustion, therefore, had to be a myth. All previous cases had been misreported by the medical community. And he put the, the, the subject to rest, if you will. And because he was such uh, had such high regard and standing within the scientific community in the 1850s, what von Liebig said, you know, became fact. 
in looking back at his experiment and his premise and his stance for argument, what von Liebig did was a credible experiment, but he made the wrong conclusions based on that experiment. In essence, he simply chose the wrong fuel. He used the wrong argument and experiment and arrived, therefore, at a false conclusion. We've tried the von Liebig experiment twice in the early days of our research to see if we could get it to work. Um, we took um, a ham shank, marinated in, in a mix of vodka, brandy, and um, whiskey for a year, mm. refrigerated, of course. And it just so happened that at the end of that year, a, a film crew from the BBC came over wanting to do a segment about our research. So we pulled out our ham shank sample, wrapped it in a piece of cotton, laid it on a tar-based sheet of linoleum paper, uh, or linoleum, um, and then laid that on, on a wooden planking, gave it and an infinite amount of oxygen to burn, tried to light it, could not keep a sustained flame going. Um, after an hour of attempting to burn this ham shank to powder, we ended up with um, not the, the fat rendering out, which is the wick effect, which we can get into later, but we were left with 99% of our ham shank sample left, completely intact and recognizable as a ham shank. Um, the BBC filmed that, but then went on to film another experiment by a debunker, and they can, who basically didn't didn't have a great deal of success proving his case either, but concluded that he got it right, Larry got it wrong, and ended their show saying that spontaneous human combustion is basically believed only by silly school bus drivers, of which we happen to be a school bus driver. That's awful. That's ridiculous. Could you eat that ham? That sounded delicious, by the way. <laughs> Um, yeah, it was well <laughs> marinated, and if you like your um, your your pork soaked in whiskey and, and vodka, it would have been quite edible. Sounds like it might be worth a try. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's that's unfortunate, but the, that that seems so backwards too, because you were trying to do the experiment that was used to debunk spontaneous human combustion. So you know, it's like a double negative anyway. You, they should have said that you were correct that there was something to this. We thought that's the conclusion that they should have reached and, and, and shared with the audience, but they chose chose a different avenue to pursue. If, if you know, we, we've seen a number of shows done on the subject by the BBC, and frankly, of all the shows that we've seen under the BBC moniker, not one has been wholly accurate nor truthful. If they want to sue us for that, so be it. But you know, when you have to distort the evidence or, or distort the the conclusions that you arrive from your experiments in order to make your case. You know, maybe your case isn't so strong to begin with. It's strange, too, because uh, you, you sent me an article that you'd written about uh, spontaneous human combustion, which was a great sort of overview on, on all this phenomena. It just seems so strange how it's, like, vilified in a lot of ways by so many different, you know, the experts, quote-unquote, the scientists or the people in the fire community or people in the medical profession, and, and as you're saying here in the media, too. It's like, why, why you know, is it... I guess because it's so strange that it engenders this kind of uh, ridicule, but it's just remarkable how vehement people are about going out against SHC. You, you are quite correct in that observation. We have been blistered, uh, again, to pardon the expression in the <laughs> subject, we have been blistered by the critics. Uh, we've been told to get a life. We've been told that, you know, we're just a stupid school bus driver, which which is interesting because, here again, the, the, the critics, the naysayers, have to resort to name-calling in order to make the point. You know, you know, perhaps in, in the public eye, being a school bus driver isn't the most glamorous or high, it certainly isn't the highest-paying occupation one can have. 
But we're doing a public service, and it fits our schedule, and, you know, somebody has to get these little darlings to school so they can become educated and think critically, hopefully, uh, in the United States of America and the next generation. Um, so, so why do we get vilified for, for providing a, a worthy, credible, needed, valuable public service simply because we drive a school bus and at the same time have looked at the evidence we believe with an open mind, critically and skeptically, and come to the conclusion that on rare occasions the human body is quite capable of um, burning itself, second-degree burn, third-degree burn, fourth-degree burn, and even more seriously than a fourth-degree burn can, can normally achieve. Indeed. It's very strange. It's very strange. Let's sort of just stick around here in the evolution of SHC, because what I'm interested in, too, is you said it was hotly debated up until about the 1850s. Then what happened? Was it sort of shunted and sort of like, you know, we don't do this. We don't talk about this. We don't, you know, acknowledge this as far as, you know, people who investigated fire scenes and stuff like that. And did it ever really come back into into favor as far as a possibility, or has it always still been on that periphery? Uh, that's a wonderful question. Let's see if we can answer it intelligently based on our research and, and ability to recall what we've done uh, many years ago. Um, as we said, and, and as you recall correctly, when, when von Liebig, you know, planted spontaneous human combustion in the 1850s, that, that really, you know, squashed it as far as mainstream science was willing to consider. Shortly thereafter, Charles Dickens, um, certainly not a scientist, but a good writer, um, resurrected spontaneous human combustion as a concept when he wrote Bleak House. He used SHC to get rid of one of the characters in his, in his novel, uh, Mr. Crook, who died by spontaneous human combustion in Chapter 33 of Bleak House. And um, not surprisingly, Dickens took a, a great deal of heat from, from the mainstream academic community of his day, particularly from a Professor Lewis, who really blustered Dickens for raising this stupid, insane, idiotic nonsense uh, to his readers, uh, thinking that because of Dickens' literary stature that they might give credence to this silly concept of SHC. Dickens shot back. There's an interesting exchange, published exchange between the two gentlemen, and Dickens, Dickens um, said he had done his research, he had done his homework, and he believed that he was perfectly in good standing by bringing up this concept because he looked at the evidence that was available to him and thought that this was a credible phenomenon. And he had every right, both scientifically and literarily, to invoke it as a plot device in Bleak House. But after that, uh, um, SHC once again kind of disappeared from, from public consciousness until probably around 1905 when there was a, a plethora of alleged SHC events. And again in 1938 when, when another writer named Russell um, discovered a lot of cases from 1938, published them. So there's a little bit of renaissance there. And then it died away once again until, as, as you surmise, we believe correctly, our research began to become um, publicized. Um, in 1976, we wrote the first of many articles detailing the first of our many in-depth investigations into some classic cases of spontaneous human combustion. That involved the case of Dr. John Irving Bentley that happened here in our home state of Pennsylvania. We published that case for the um, in pursuit of the Journal of the Society for the Investigation of the Unexplained, Ivan Sanderson's old um, publication. And that eventually led to That's Incredible contacting us to film the Dr. Bentley case for one of their shows in 1980, 
1981, we did another show for That's Incredible, uh, focusing on Jack Angel, the first of many survivors of partial spontaneous human combustion that we've been privileged to to meet and interview over the years. And then from there, the, the public, you know, started, you know, television made the public aware of the, of the subject. Um, when, when A Blaze was published in and released to the public in 1996, we took a booth at the, the uh, Pennsylvania Firemen's Fire Conference here in Harrisburg, which is the largest, at that time at least, the largest conference devoted to volunteer firefighting in the nation. And the first year was a difficult booth to man because very few firefighters at that time publicly knew about SHC, and we were, you know, asked some questions, but clearly a lot of people at this convention avoided us because SHC was not something that they had been trained to consider or if they'd heard about it at all in their various fire training exercises or courses, they'd have been told that this is silly nonsense and don't deal with it. The second year after more of our publications had been um, put to the public and we had more television exposure and radio exposure, the second year at the convention, the, the firemen would come by and kind of talk and ask some intelligent questions about the subject. They were clearly more curious, far less frightened. The third year at the conference, there was a dramatic sea change. Now people would come by and say, oh, yeah, I've seen that on television, and they talked to their friends about it. I know this, and I know that about it. It was quite interesting evolution. Yeah, it sounds like that, yeah. So there wasn't too... Well, it's good. I was afraid you were going to say by the third year, you know, they threw you out or something because they didn't want you, you know, poisoning the minds of these firemen. So I'm glad it actually went in the opposite direction of where I was expecting it to go. Now, let's talk a little bit about some of these key cases because I find these to be particularly fascinating. You just touched on one that, as you said, is, is pretty much one of the biggest cases out there, the Dr. John Irving Bentley story. So uh, why don't you tell that one and, and, you know, bring people up to speed on, on this infamous SHC case? Okay, we'd be delighted to. This is the case that really got us interested in this mystery. Uh, we mentioned earlier the Riso case from 1951 that, that Frank Edwards wrote about. Um, her ashen remains are buried only a couple miles from our office here in South Central Pennsylvania, ironically. We've been to her grave site many times. We've spoken to her relatives. We've spoken to many of the principals involved in that case. But the case that really grabbed our interest that made us sit up and say, wow, this is something that is so bizarre, so weird, so nonsensical, so out of mainstream conventionality and orthodoxy. There really does appear to be a genuine Fortean mystery here. And that's what we like. Yeah. You know, if we can find something new that requires investigation, requires thinking, requires expanding current awareness because current awareness just doesn't seem to be able to come to grips with the concept and the cause of spontaneous human combustion, then as a as a clear-thinking skeptic, we become really intrigued. And the Bentley case did that for us. Here's the scenario. In December of 1966, Don Gosnell, a meter reader for the local gas company in north central Pennsylvania in a town called Cowdersport, the county seat of Potter County, he got up, put on his work boots that snowy morning, walked down Main Street, Street, knocked on the door of Dr. Bentley's home at 403 North Main um, to go inside, go down to the basement and read the gas meter. Normal work day for, for Mr. Gosnell. Mm -hmm. When he was walking down the hall of Dr. Bentley's home, he noticed that there was a really light, sweet-smelling smoke in the hallway. Didn't think a whole lot of it. Climbed down the basement stairs, read the meter in the basement, 
and as he, was, as he was preparing to leave, he noticed by the flashlight that over in the corner of the basement was a pile of ash about five inches high, 14 inches in diameter. Mr. Gosnell was a volunteer fireman in countersport at the time. He walked over, kicked the mound of ash with his boot, and pondered why, thinking there must have been a fire in the Bentley household overnight or sometime recently, why he and his colleagues had not received a fire call to respond. Mm -hmm. Mr. Gosnell looked overhead above the pile of ash on the earthen floor and noticed in the basement ceiling a two-by-three-foot hole with some cherry-red embers on its perimeter. Having read the gas meter and seeing no fire in the basement to put out, Mr. Gosnell walked back up the stairs down the hallway and decided that he'd wrap on Dr. Bentley's apartment door just to make sure the 92-year-old retired physician was still in good health. Didn't get a response. The door was unlocked, so Mr. Gosnell pushed it open, stuck his head into the living room of Dr. Bentley and saw nothing amiss, but did not see Dr. Bentley. Stepped further into the living room. This was a two-room apartment. The other room was Dr. Bentley's bathroom. Don Gosnell stuck his head around the door jam to look into the bathroom, and his face turned ashen to white, he told us, because there was the other side of the hole that he had just seen in the basement, now burned down through the bathroom floor, through the linoleum, through the floor joists almost completely. And lying tangential to that hole was a human leg from the knee down, one leg. And above the hole was Dr. Bentley's aluminum walker, askew, still intact, undamaged. Cosnell realized immediately that the ashes that he had just kicked moments earlier with his work boot down in the basement were the ashes of human body specifically Dr. Bentley. Don Gosnell ran out of the house, down the hall, into his work office, and made the understatement of 1966, Dr. Bentley's burned up. <laughs> and indeed he had, but in a way that made no sense to Don Gosnell, again, he was a firefighter, made no sense to anyone else in the community who was involved in firefighting and the fire services and the medical community. We spoke to all the firemen that we could identify who were at that fire scene to a man. They told us they had never, ever seen a fire like this. They had never even knew that a fire like this could occur. What was so astonishing about the Bentley fire scene um, invokes all the classic aspects of what history has defined as what we call classic spontaneous human combustion. Mm -hmm. The nearly wholly incineration of a human body to powder more completely than can be accomplished under normal conditions in a retort in a crematorium. There was no fire or heat damage directly above the point of combustion that consumed Dr. Bentley's body. We were at that fire scene. We can guarantee that statement. The ceiling had not been reconstructed by the time that we got there. There was no scorching to the ceiling whatsoever, and it was a very low ceiling. There was no acrid stench of burned flesh that you would normally find at a human fatality fire scene. Yeah. In fact, as Don told us, there was kind of a sweet smell, and we find this again and again in classic cases of spontaneous human combustion. People report a sweet aroma, a redolent scent. In one case from a case in Illinois in 1979 out in Bolingbrook, the next of kin told us that the house smelled like hickory incense. Yeah, see, I had this in my I had this in my notes, too, uh, on, the, on the Bentley case, because I thought that stood out as particularly strange. Here you say that it's a recurring pattern, I guess you could say, with spawncom cases. This, uh, this, this sweet smell. What do you, what do you think that might be all about? It's probably a way in which the sugars, the esters in the body, evaporate during the the chemical process that consumes the body. Mm -hmm. That's speculation, but fairly well grounded, we believe. Okay. Um, at the Bentley Fire Scene, at which which we were there, um, 
There was a bathtub directly above the edge of the hole through which the body burned. The bathtub had been painted with enamel paint. The paint, even though it's charred uh, from carbon due during the combustion process, the paint did not blister. Now, you can blister paint by holding a candle flame next to it. Yeah. And so what we're looking at here is something that, and if your listeners don't know, here are the, here are the basic details about happen, what happens in a crematorium. The cadaver is put in the retort, and the retort is either fueled by natural gas or by 40 to 50 gallons of fuel oil. The temperature is raised to about 22 to 2400 degrees Fahrenheit for an hour to an hour and a half. And then the retort temperature is lowered generally to 15, 16, 1800 degrees Fahrenheit for another hour and a half to two and a half hours. What comes out of the retort under those extremely high temperatures for a very long period of time is not simply the proverbial dust and ash, but bone fragments, large enough that the bone fragments are put in a cremulator, which is a fancy name for a grinder that mechanically grinds the bone fragments to powder, which is then mixed with what is raked out of the retort, put in the urn, and given to the next of kin. It's a very time-consuming, very expensive process that utilizes equipment that costs sixty, eighty, a hundred thousand dollars The cremation is, also needs to invest in air filters, to filter out the gases from the combustion process as well as the noxious odors of the combustion of the flesh itself. We would expect to find at a scene of Dr. Bentley, for example, all the conditions of high heat, prolonged combustion, and noxious odor. We don't find any of that. We find a very localized, apparently intensely fearsome blaze that consumes the body and is relegated almost wholly to the body itself. In fact, if in most cases you didn't have part of the extremities left, like in Dr. Bentley's case, the lower leg, you wouldn't even know that a human body had burned up. Yeah, yeah. So, when we when we began our research, we went to the Hershey Medical Library, where we went to the College of Physicians in Philadelphia, we went to the Library of Congress, of course, down in D.C., pulled out rack after rack after rack of medical journals, forensic texts, looking at the, the material that pertain to burn, burning bodies. We found no descriptions that met something like we found at the Dr. Bentley fire scene in Cowdersport, Pennsylvania in 1966. With one exception, there was a textbook named Glacier's Jurisprudence that did have a couple case, a couple photographs, classic SHC fire scenes, but no details of when when the fires occurred, the names of the victims, other than that they probably occurred somewhere in the United Kingdom. They're just thrown in the chapter on, on burns, and they're in stark contrast to all the other photographs of burned cadavers. Even the most fearsome automobile accident fires where the fuel tanker rubs in, we have a case from Philadelphia many years ago where a fuel tanker was caught in a, in a collision. The fuel tank exploded, so the, the driver of the truck as well as a hapless motorist were both incinerated by a fire that was fueled by eight to 9,000 gallons of burning gasoline. Oh, the temperature was so hot that it burned the rubber off the wheels. It actually buckled the rebar in the Schuylkill Expressway. And yet the investigators, after the fire was put out, could identify both victims in the mishap by dental records, so impervious are teeth to the effects of fire. And yet in cases like Dr. Bentley and others, we don't even have 
dental records available to identify the victim. We only know the name of the victim from the fact that there was no other human missing at the time in the locale. Very strange stuff. Very uh, incredibly strange. Stuff. It's just mind-boggling. This this whole this whole phenomenon, and and and, and you reference the pictures there, not specifically uh, the the picture here of uh, Dr. John Bentley, but that one obviously is pretty famous, and that that might be something interesting to explore too, in a way, uh, on a meta level, because you know, I think that might be partially why spontaneous human combustion both captivates and repulses people uh, is, is the is the photographic evidence of this because it's you are you are stunning. incredibly you are incredibly astute to make that observation some people have said we look at this subject very clinically very unemotionally and and for the most part that probably is true we see this as a mystery we see the photographic evidence as depicting something that shouldn't happen in fact, if you listen to the bunkers, the debunkers, and we can get back to this later, in fact, the debunkers, we believe, make the best case for spontaneous human combustion. It's a really interesting twist that they, they provide to us. But the photographs, for some people, are we, we admit and we fully acknowledge this, can be incredibly disturbing and disconcerting. Um, we are dealing, obviously, with a situation where a person is dead. They appear to be dead as a result of fire, and most people have an innate, inherent dread of death by fire. They think of fire as being a very painful, horrific mode of physical transition. And for most people, under most normal conditions, we wholly support and concur with that assessment. But when it comes to SHC, um, the Whatever the process is that causes this whole body incineration, it appears to be painless. So in these incredibly rare instances where apparently fire of some form has consumed the body, um, the person made the physical transition without experiencing the pain that most people would commonsensically associate with having been burned to this extent for a very long period of time. Yeah, well, The, the, the oh, photographs are, are historical records of fact, even though some naysayers would, would wish otherwise. And whether you find them disturbing and, and want to push them away, and frankly, that we've encountered this. As, as we were wrapping up our research for Blaze, we went down to the National Fire Academy in Emmitsburg, Maryland, to see if any of the instructors there could help us understand this phenomenon as we went to press. You know, had we overlooked something in our research, could they offer us some clues or an explanation based yeah. on their professional expertise? The day that we went down, we encountered... The, the three senior fire instructors that were on duty that particular day. The first one we met, we introduced ourselves, explained what we were there to inquire about, and we showed him the Dr. Bentley photograph. And his comment to us was, well, I've, I've heard about this, but frankly, I don't know anything about it, and I'm, and I'm not interested in talking to you about it any further. Okay, fine. <laughs> we encountered the next in senior instructor actually in a hallway, and we introduced ourselves again, attempted to hand him the Bentley photograph and some others that we had in our possession. And he literally said, I don't want to see those. He turned on his heels and literally ran down the hallway from us. We'll never forget this. That commotion generated interest from a person who was walking past us who turned out to be the other senior fire instructor that day. He paused. He said, what do you got? Let me see. He looked at the photographs and said, and we'll never forget this. 
These are fire scenes that we don't have a clue to understand or to explain. Come into my office, sit down, tell me everything you know. <laughs> so it was really an interesting contrast to know how and to experience so personally how even mainstream fire service professionals deal with this subject. Some find it so disconcerting that even they, who have dealt with, obviously, fire fatalities in their career, they even teach about them, they find these fire scenes are so distressing, they consciously cannot deal with them. We call, you know, this, this is a classic example of xenophobia, fear of the unknown. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you find someone who is unfamiliar with the subject but wants to learn, is curious, is open-minded, is inquisitive. And with that individual, we were happy to go to his office, say, this is what we've learned in a nutshell. You know, does, does any of this make sense to you? And basically he says, man, you know, this, we just, we just don't know anything about this. But that's how things get learned. If you encounter something that you can't explain, then study it, research it, explore it. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the, you know, that's what this program's all about. And obviously that's what you're all about here, you know, examining and really keeping, no pun intended, keeping the fire burning on spontaneous human combustion uh, all these years. Now, you, you, you mentioned a case here that I hadn't been familiar with that, that really piqued my interest, but you sort of mentioned it in passing, and I definitely want to hear about this. This is Jack Angel. I think you oh, referenced yeah. him earlier. Someone who survived uh, a potential SHC event. Right. Jack's is a very intriguing story. As we said, um, this is the first of many survivors of partial spontaneous human combustion that we were privileged to meet and interview at length. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jax is a very interesting story, and when you when you see the many shows that we've done for the various television networks over the years about this subject, and we have a new one coming up um, probably this fall on the History Channel, we believe it's called William Shatner's Weird or What. Um, how that show will turn out, we have no way of knowing at this point, but it's something that your audience members hopefully will look forward to, and maybe we'll get um, fair treatment for a change. Let's hope so, yeah. When we encountered the case of Jack Angel... Um, because the, the bunkers hate this aspect of our research. They really do, because it's easy for them to say, well, nobody was at Dr. Bentley's fire scene. Nobody was sitting beside Mrs. Reeser in her apartment in St. Petersburg in 1951. So nobody saw the dropped cigarette. Nobody saw the misplaced pipe. Nobody saw the arson murderer sneak in and torch these hapless victims and escape the crime scene with, and never be caught. Mm -hmm. When you've got survivors then you have to either deal with their testimony and the medical evidence that their cases present, or you call them liars. And the latter raises some interesting legal prospects. So with that as, as foreground, let's go into the case of Jack Angel. Yeah. Jack Angel back in 1974 was a traveling salesman. Very normal kind of guy, um, earning a good income by, by selling clothing out of, a, out of a motorhome. That was his showroom on wheels, if you will. In November of 1974, he had an appointment with a client um, on a Tuesday morning. He, if memory serves, Monday night he pulled into the Ramada Inn in Savannah, Georgia, to find, um, as he arrived late, the room that he'd reserved had already been let out to someone else. So the, the hotel said, okay, you know, park your RV out in, out in the parking lot, no big deal. Jack was amenable to that. Prepared himself to go to bed, went to sleep in the motor home expecting to wake up the following morning to meet with his client. He missed the appointment. He woke up quite a long time later, a ruffled stiltskin-type sleep, if you will, and to discover that when he awakened, his right forearm, he noticed, was burned black, charred 
the crisp and to the bone, he told us. <laughs> he experienced no pain. Jack got up, got himself dressed, exited the motorhome, walked into the, in, into the Ramada Inn, ordered a drink, which he said was atypical for him because he found himself to be quite thirsty. The waitstaff commented on his burned right arm, and the next thing Mr. Angel remembered was waking up in the emergency room of the Savannah Memorial Hospital, surrounded by a team of physicians and medical attendants marveling about the, the nature of the burn injury of their patient. Only then, Jack told us, did he begin to experience the kind of agonizing pain that one would associate with such extremely severe burning of one's forearm. The burns were treated by several physicians, some of whom we had the privilege to interview on the case, about the case, and the nature of the injury was such that they considered doing extensive, expensive skin graft, grafting or just amputating their arm at the elbow. Oh, God. Jack decided that um, he opted for the amputation. So by the time that we met Jack, his forearm was, um, his right forearm was now cut off at the elbow. Um... He was mystified. He marveled about what could have burned his body while he slept. There was a team of liability lawyers in, in the Atlanta area. We were told during our research that this is one of the most powerful, skilled, knowledgeable, and effective liability offices in the whole state of Georgia. They yeah. heard about the case. They saw a million-dollar lawsuit against the manufacturer of the motorhome that Jack slept in. <laughs> thinking something in the motorhome must have malfunctioned. They, they'd sue Avco. They'd make, for $3 million, they'd get, you know, 33% of that. Jack would be wealthy. They'd be wealthy. And, you know, every happy ending except that Jack could not get his right forearm back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's they, lawyers oh, for they, you, had, right? they had the Avco motorhome torn down to the wheelbase, looking for electrical problems, plumbing problems. They looked for evidence of lightning bolt strike. They looked for evidence of foul play. You know, they looked for everything, anything that could be attributed to something that malfunctioned in that motorhome. They couldn't find anything to support their case. And a week before the case was scheduled to go to trial, they pulled it from the docket. Said the, as, as the lawyer told us, and we sat in his office as he said this to us, both of them, we could not meet the burden of proof. We could not prove that there was anything malfunctioning in the motorhome that caused Jack's injuries. So at that point, Jack, um, we, we explained to him the nature of our research, what we discovered up to that point, and he concluded, as did we, that Jack had experienced and survived partial spontaneous human combustion while he slept. Not only did his right forearm burn, um, he had other burn injuries on other parts of his body, the nape of his neck, his groin area, and during the medical examinations in his treatment, it was ascertained that he had also had heat or burn-type injuries to disc in his spinal column. Um, clearly, this would not have occurred if, um, you know, he had been doused with gasoline you know, on his right forearm and somebody right. had thrown a match through the motorhome window or something like that. The debunkers with the Jack Angel case have said, well, Larry, you're simply being foolish to arrive at such a non-supportable conclusion as that. What Jack, what happened to Jack was that there was a plumbing problem with the motorhome, and he went out to monkey around with the um, water pump and scalded himself. Now, we've talked to motorhome technicians who have serviced actually that particular model of Africo motorhome. And to a man, they have told us that you would have to stand there with your hand holding open the valve on the water pump 
And then because Jack was burned not only the, on his right arm, but he had burns on his back, on his legs, and elsewhere, you would have to hold that valve open and then pirouette somehow 360 degrees uh, while allowing hot water to scald all over your body. Oh, gee. No one, no one, yeah, no one's going to scald right? their groin with hot water. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> what is that? Doesn't, doesn't work. Yeah. Doesn't work. Anyway, these, these were not scalding burn injuries to begin with. In fact, one of the medical reports that we have um, from Jack's treatment at the VA hospital was that the burns were, quote, unquote, internal in origin. Hmm. Now, the only way we can interpret that phrase medically is that the doctors concluded that something had burned Jack from the inside out, right. which brings us back to the definition of spontaneous human combustion, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Very strange. See, because and, and the weird part is, see, he wakes up with this horrific burn, and at no point you would think that if you were burning, you would wake up. That's the strange part too of it. Another aspect of the strange. You know what I mean? Well, another aspect that's strange is that when he he awakened to find that his right forearm had been charred to the bone. There was no burn, no singeing to the sheets on which his body had laid during that time. His pajamas were not damaged. So there was no other fire damage in the in the motorhome. Weird. Very weird. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's why we love this subject so much. It is so weird. It's so nonsensical. It's so bizarre and baffling. It it just cries out for study and and deep thinking. Right, right. And and to get meta again on this. Uh, it, and it's terrifying, to be honest with you. Earlier, you said uh, that the doctor in 1850 ascribed it to, you know, overweight, heavy drinking smokers. I, I'm I'm a prime candidate, Larry, for spontaneous human combustion. <laughs> so I'm already concerned here. We, uh, we checked, yeah, we checked out your website, Tim, and and we did a search on spontaneous human combustion to see if it was mentioned anywhere on your extensive website, and we only came up with one hit, and it was by one of your participants who goes by the name of Chiron, uh, mm-hmm. under the K-Files. And he made a really interesting observation, which we just thought find delightful. He said, the whole concept is just so absurd that it gives life a bit of danger. It's that instant death syndrome. You can say, um, okay, well, I better enjoy this because I just might burst into flame at any time, which is what probably makes this so horrifying a concept for so many people. Exactly. You know, yeah. can be walking down the street. If, if SHC really happens, as Larry Arnold claims it does, I could be sitting on a sofa. I could be walking down the street. I can be driving my automobile, and poof, I go go up in a ball of fire. How horrifying to think of that! So I'll just ignore the whole concept. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and, and when you think about it, with the exception maybe of you know you're flying in a plane over the Bermuda Triangle, there's no <laughs> other genre of the paranormal that has fatality attached to it. You know, you may spontaneously see a UFO, you may spontaneously see a Bigfoot, but you're not going to die. With this thing, <laughs> if you spontaneously combust, you're done. So I can I can see why it has its place, uh, its unique place in the world of the paranormal. It It is almost a unique Fortean um, subject, yeah. There's, you know, the only other one that we find that comes close to SHC in terms of the ability to document physically the phenomenon is the crop circle enigma. You know, UFOs or lights in the sky um, at this point for the most part, um, alien abductions, you know, it's it's nebulous at best. Um, Sasquatches, the whole realm of cryptozoology, clearly there are, there are species being discovered by science all the time that are new to science, uh, but the more cryptic field of, of new species um, we're still waiting for a really credible 
piece of Bigfoot footage other than the Patterson piece, which we find wholly supportable. But beyond that, you know, there should be some more out there. We're dealing almost wholly with anecdotal information for most of the Fortean realm. But with SHC, the photographs are there. The photographs, naysayers aside, aren't photoshopped. These are real historical documents that would stand up under any court examination. You're dealing with a phenomenon that is really tangible. And unless there's some very clever arson murderers around who are finding ways to burn up animals and make it look like human ashes, and then absconding with the actual victim who is no longer ever to be seen again, um, you have to face the fact, the conclusion that we have come to face and accept that on rare occasion, and we emphasize rare, spontaneous human combustion does occur, can occur, will occur. Yeah, it's scary, folks. So live every day like it's your last because you could burst into flames tomorrow. What, you say on rare occasions, what's the, you know, what's, I guess, you know, what's the demographic here on this? How often would you, do you think it happens? I'm sure it's hard to really get a, get a beat on that considering... I get the feeling that if a firefighter came upon a SHC case, that it would get kind of swept under the rug in a way. So, I mean, but but what's your best speculative guess on how often this sort of thing happens? You are so correct in that statement. In, in the Bolingbroke case from Illinois in 1979 involving Beatrice Oski, literally the firefighter, I'm, I'm sorry, we stand corrected, the police department, you could almost literally say tried to sweep the ashes under the rug. It was only because of the aggressiveness of the fire department in Bolingbroke at that time that we learned about the case and found out about the curious aspects of, of the Beatrice Oski fire fatality. Um, we know there are cases that we have not learned about. We just know this. This is a given in our research. These cases are incredibly difficult to identify, even more difficult to research in depth. Um, firefighters, as you correctly note, quite often do not report these cases truthfully and accurately. Um, death certificates quite often do not characterize these deaths honestly. In, in the Bentley case that we've given some details about earlier in, the, in, in our conversation with you, the official cause of death on the death certificate of Dr. Bentley is death by asphyxiation, attendant to 90% 90% burning of the body. Now. In order to make the medical assessment that Dr. Bentley died by asphyxiation, you need a trachea to autopsy. There was no trachea to autopsy. That was powder. 90% burning of Dr. Bentley's body, as John Deck, the deputy coroner, told us, well, I call it more like 98%. Actually, I'd make it 99% because <laughs> all that was left was one half of one leg. Um, in, in the George Mott case, another classic case very reminiscent of Dr. Bentley, George Mott was a retired firefighter in upstate New York. He met his flaming demise in, in the spring of 1986. We have his death certificate. Official cause of George Mott's ashened remains was death due to, guess what, asphyxiation. Once again, no trachea to autopsy. Um, so if you're looking for death certificates of fire victims, you're not going to find anything that's going to tip you off to spontaneous human combustion. Um, you need to find the photographs or you need to find first responders at these amazing fire scenes who are not afraid to talk about what they actually saw. Only then can a researcher such as ourselves begin to delve into the depth of research that these amazing fire scenes demand in order to find um, the facts, the evidence that we need and others would like to have 
so that someday all of us can understand exactly what's going on inside the bodies of these fire fatality victims. Now, as the world's foremost authority on SpawnCom, is it, is it better for you, I guess you could say? Do you get better leads nowadays from, from the brave people who are willing to, uh, you know, let you in on these cases? Hopefully that, that is the case. We certainly have gotten leads over the years based on the notoriety um, exposure um, that we have received, um, that, our, that our research has been given. Um, but we also know that not everyone has heard of our research. Uh, hopefully programs such as yours will get the word out even to a wider audience. Um, it's important um, from a research point of view to find out about these cases as quickly as possible. Um, if we can get there within a few days of the actual event, um, air samples could be taken. The first responders at these whole body incineration fire scenes should take in scintillators, should test for radiation. Um, we can't suggest that they will find it, but some of the theories indicate that radiation might be present depending on what is actually causing these fires to erupt within the body. Um, air samples, as we said, can be taken. Um, ashes perhaps can be analyzed for clues as to the nature that caused bone and flesh to, to dehydrate completely to dry desiccated powder. We, we talked here about Jack Angel, and in a way it's almost, he, he almost still kind of falls into the category in a sense of, uh, of, these, of these fatal victims of SHC, in the sense that he woke up, I guess you could say post-SHC, although maybe when he went to get the drink of water or when he went to the bar to get the drink, that might have staved off whatever was going on. Like maybe if he didn't, he would have just continued to burn. But um, have we, have you, have you ever, you know, uh, come upon a witness or, or a victim, I guess you could say, of SHC, you know, who was fully conscious and all of a sudden was like, oh, my God, I feel like I'm on fire, you know, that kind of thing. We have spoken to a number of women who are going through postmenopausal heat flashes, and they, <laughs> they tell us that they feel like their bodies are going to burst into fire from within. The, the, the heat flashes are so intense. Um, we, we, we also, and this isn't something that simply affects the female um, persuasion. You asked about demographics earlier. Um, the demographics of our SHC database um, flies in the face of what the earlier researchers claimed. We said earlier that the, the medical community in the 17 and 1800s said that all victims were female and elderly and corpulent and alcoholic. Um, that clearly is not the case. In our database, 50% of the victims are female, 47% are male, 3% history just doesn't tell us the gender. So by gender, you know, male females are about equally apt to spawn calm. You know, the, the, the fatal cases We'll never know. Uh, but the survivor cases who have been awake and alert and fully conscious when their bodies have erupted into smoke or emitting an electric blue-colored flame, yes, they, they can tell us in retrospect that they either were oblivious to their predicament until it was pointed out by a, to them by a bystander or they felt a, a low heat rising up in the, in the case of Kay Fletcher, a housewife in Ohio back in 1995, if memory serves. She was finishing up the breakfast dishes in her kitchen one Sunday morning, and she felt a, a low heat rising up her spinal column, and, to, and it got to her upper left shoulder. When she turned around, she saw smoke billowing out of her shoulder. While being sensical, she thought that she had somehow come in contact with, with an open flame in the kitchen. She 
tore off her outer garments, the smoking persisted. She tore off her undergarments, the smoking persisted. Her husband, Mike, happened to come by at that moment and noticed that the smoke was emanating from the flesh of his wife. And he patted at it, and the smoking ceased. She was left with a first-degree burn, a reddening of the skin that lasted for about 30 minutes, she told us. They both were in astonished amazement at the predicament that they had both experienced, one internally and the other by observation. Uh, we have another couple from um, California at the time, um, Peter and Barbara Jones. We've documented their case, and they've been kind enough to do a number of shows with us recounting their episode. In October of 1980, Peter was dressing himself, um, putting on his work boots, sitting on the edge of his bed. Barbara was still in bed. And when he realized his body was becoming engulfed in billowing clouds of smoke, whitish-gray smoke, he left to his feet. Uh, Barbara jumped up, started patting her husband anywhere she could find to pat him, <laughs> put out the smoke, the fire, which they both concluded was happening to Peter. The smoke ceased. They looked at each other and then started looking around for a cause of the smoke. Where was the fire? It wasn't yeah. on his clothing. It wasn't on the bedding material. They looked under the bed. Nothing on the floor or under the bed had been burning. They just looked at other and said, what the hell was that? Um, Peter is one of these amazing individuals who, uh, once again, if you pardon the expression in the context of this discussion, he remains incredibly calm under fire. <laughs> went about his work business that day. That afternoon, he was sitting in his car at a railroad grade crossing. This, the arms were down. train was going by. And suddenly he realized that for the second time in that amazing day in his life, smoke was once again billowing from his body, this time from his right arm. Mm. He rolled down the window, left the smoke as it was filling up the interior of his car, then out the window. By the time the train went by and the cross arm raised, the smoking had stopped. He drove home and never told his wife about the second episode until both of them were sitting at the television one evening. In 1981, and saw, in 1980, and saw a program about spontaneous human combustion, and they contacted us through the show and said, "This is what happened to us." Believe it or not, well, we've interviewed them at length, and we have no reason whatsoever to discount their story, in part because they are both credible, truthful individuals, and in part because by now we've had the privilege of interviewing more than a dozen other people who have very similar stories, quite independent of theirs, of course but similar stories to tell us. So once again, this is a phenomenon where the body will not burst into flame and consume itself to powder, classic SHC, but will partially burn of its own accord, smoking or blistering. Those cases are, again, extremely difficult to, to identify because, as you might well imagine, oftentimes these people are terrified um, or don't know who to contact. Mm. Uh, by the time they go to their family physician, as did Kay Fletcher, um, there's nothing for the family physician to look at. There's nothing in his or her medical training that can help explain to the patient what afflicted them. So they're baffled and you know quite perplexed about their predicament. The best thing that we can ask um, if any of your listeners know about such cases is to simply contact us through the website, and we'll be eager to track down the information. And we look for parallels. We look for recurring themes or, you know, if the case is completely unique, so be it. Um, 
bottom line is we're looking for clues, we're looking for patterns that will help us identify the mechanism or mechanisms that can explain this phenomenon and perhaps come to a realization someday as to the means by which the phenomenon can not only be understood but can be prevented. Now, you, you speak of patterns, and, and I wanted to sort of address this issue here uh, that I noticed in the article you sent me. It was dealing with the case of Helen Conway, and I believe uh, you cited a fire expert or someone who was on the scene or something like that that, that said that the, the fire was presumed to only have taken like six minutes. Like this, this SHC seems to be something that happens fast. Is that, that's where I'm going with this. Is that pretty accurate? In most cases, that is quite accurate. There are exceptions, as, as in SHC, there are, there are exceptions to most anything that we can say about the subject other than it involves a human being. Beyond that, you can probably find an exception somewhere in the pages of a blaze. But in general, yes, the process, once it unfolds, tends to be very rapid, we believe. Like with Jack Angel, you know, you're sleeping. He might, be, he might have been asleep for a couple hours or something like that. That might have been all it took. We don't know. Very weird. See, that's, see um, it, it, when you look at all these things, it just, it, it's just flummoxing to try and figure out exactly what is the cause of all this. Now, obviously, you've looked at this for decades. What do you, you know, where do you draw the conclusions, I guess you'd say? What, 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 what avenues pique your interest as far as the causes of spontaneous human combustion? We've explored more than 120 theories in our book of Blaze that purport to offer plausible, sometimes far-fetched, sometimes based in physics and mathematics, um, mechanisms by which the phenomenon might occur. One of the problems we find is that the cases are so varied throughout history that it is impossible for us to identify a common set of factors, even to define a set of common parameters, which would allow us to explain all the cases with one or two theories. And this, again, is one of the criticisms that has been leveled at us by one of our main detractors in our research. He's told us that the problem with our research is that we have cases that, to use his verbiage, are all over the place. They're too varied. They're too different, as if all the cases should appear identical. Well, our, our comeback to that is, I'm sorry, we cannot control what history provides to us and to others who are willing to look with an open mind at the evidence. You know, exactly. What history provides is what you've got to deal with, folks. Mm-hmm. That's how we deal with all of our research. And, and, and secondly, you know, some people are, are highly allergic to, to hayweed, to cheese, to peanut butter, for example. Others are completely immune to any kind of allergy or, or physical reaction, physiological reaction to peanut butter. You know, so human bodies are different, you know. Six billion people on the planet at the moment, maybe getting close to seven billion, we're not all alike. Our physiology, our biology, our biochemistry is very different. And within that difference, once in a while, we get these incredibly rare, bizarre manifestations of internal incineration. Very weird, very weird. And the difficulty, too, as the critic, as your critic pointed out, um, you know, wrongheadedly, is, but it's also an issue that we've run into countless times in the world of the paranormal, is that the paranormal by very nature is spontaneous. And spontaneous human combustion, by its very name, is spontaneous. So it's, Precisely so. Yeah. Yeah, it's like you can take like – they, they, they want to take their world of, of, of natural mysteries, natural phenomena, into the laboratory under controlled conditions. Well, it just doesn't work that way because, in the first place, 
we would argue, you don't know what all the factors are that have to come together to produce a specific Fortean event to begin with. So how can you take into the laboratory those conditions that you don't know what they are, put them all together, and then attempt to replicate what, what occurred naturally, spontaneously, out in the natural world? It's preposterous at this stage, we would argue. Others argue against us and against you. <laughs> well, I welcome the argument. <laughs> um, it was tragic, really. He exploded on stage. It just went up. It just was like a flash of green light, and that was it. Nothing was left. It was, it was a little green globule on his drum seat. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Several, you know, dozens of people spontaneously combust each year. It's just not really widely reported right. yet. Well, let's talk about the wick effect, because that sounds like it's the big... You know, Ballywick, no pun intended, of the of the uh, of the skeptics. So it sounds to me like you've done a pretty good job of uh, deconstructing this. But I also have a feeling that you know, if you were to go to a skeptic and ask them, they would just quickly dismiss you with the Wick effect and send you on your way. So let, let's let's settle that that issue uh, as best we can here right now. What, what's wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've been blown off many times with the Wick effect. And, and as we said earlier, we, we read about the Wick effect. In fact, this was this was posited by some of the, the physicians back in the 17 and 1800s. These people were all burning up very slowly in their own body fat over many, many hours, having been ignited externally by a drop cigarette or a drop pipe or an ember from the fireplace or whatever. We did the experiments ourselves because if the Wick effect would work, End of mystery, perhaps. At least we can you can look at more specific examples where the Wick effect perhaps could be dismissed if it was ap applicable to most of these cases. We find it not to be so. The, the BBC initially, when they when they did their programs before we got involved with them, um, they had a a scientist, a, a Drysdale of memory serves McDougal, McDougal Drysdale did an experiment for the BBC in which you took a sliver, of, a sliver of fat, wrapped it in cheesecloth, held it over an open flame from a Bunsen burner, and charred it. This was his proof that the wick effect could explain away a whole human body incineration to powder. And we're thinking, where's the bone in this piece of fat? You know, really bad experiment. But mm -hmm. he's a scientist. We actually wrote to him. said, uh, you know, why didn't you do a more credible experiment? He's, you know, and his response was basically, you know, like, I lacked funding. Well, oh, my God, you know, how much fun money does it take to get a ham shank from your butcher. <laughs> yeah, get a piece of ham with a bone we, in it. We, yeah. do that. We, we, funded our, we have funded all our research out of our back pocket. This is all personal money that has gone in, into this over the decades. We did not need, need a research grant to do this. Anyway, as, as our work became better known within the, the, the television community, obviously it, it seems, and perhaps is a sad commentary on, on the nature of television production, but uh, with rare exceptions, um, producers seem to think that they need to have a balanced program. So if mm -hmm. they got Larry on promoting SHC, they've got to have a, a, a fistful of debunkers saying, you know, SHC can't happen. So how, do the, how does the latter group make its case? Well, they usually bring up the Wick effect. And over the years, they've gotten slightly better and more honest at doing it. However, um, have their results been any more successful? We would argue they have not. John DeHaan is a, is a world-renowned criminalist, expert in fire phenomena. He did a pig experiment for the BBC in 1979, um, the same show that we did our, our um, marinated ham shank experiment for. He took a pig, and the last thing we said to the producer for the BBC as he left filming 
from our office here in Harrisburg to go out to the West Coast to film John DeHaan doing the pig experiment was this. We said, if he gets the result that he tells you he can get, it will be a scientific achievement and it will be historically important. But please don't allow him to use an accelerant because in our cases that we've given to you, there was no accelerant present. Yeah. Dr. Bentley and Mrs. Reeser and Mrs. Conway, and we'd love to get back to the Conway case later. Absolutely. These people burned up in, in a fire that was absent of gasoline or kerosene or any kind of identifiable accelerant. So what do we see when the BBC runs its program? We see John, John DeHaan pouring a liter of gasoline on the pig. Whoa, whoa. Stop the experiment right there. You know, we're not doing an honest experiment. That aside, after many hours, he's still left with a pig that is certainly recognizable as a pig carcass, even though it's pretty well burned up. But he used an accelerant to do it. Okay. Yeah. He, he, <laughs> we talked to John about this. He, he told us he took a lot of heat from his colleagues in the fire service field for using gasoline. So the next time that he got to do his naysaying, um, to represent a human body this time rather than choose a pig, uh, which was a fair representation, we will admit. We've said this ourselves many times. But rather than use a pig for the second anti-SHC burn experiment, he took a fistful of wax candles, wrapped them in, in cotton, laid them on a futon, and then lit them with a like a charcoal lighter. Okay, <laughs> our first question to every firefighter that we have taught, uh, we, we teach annually an arson course here at the local community college in Harrisburg. I said, when was the last time your body would be described as containing 100% paraffin wax? And they all laugh. Never, of course. Why would a mainstream fire science expert, a criminalist, choose to represent a human body in a fire experiment with a fistful of wax? It makes no sense. Nonetheless, this is what Mr. DeHaan chose to do. Okay, fine. We'll let him, we'll let him light his fistful of candles because otherwise, likely, that fistful of candles wrapped in cotton is going to sit on that futon until eternity and not spontaneously combust. Yeah. So he lit the candles. We'll give him that. If you watch the program, um, John says, you know, look, we've got a localized fire here. We have little radiant heat to, to burn anything that is adjacent to the futon. And um, the next scene you have is John in the, in the burn chamber standing there with a slightly charred area in the center of the futon. Surrounding objects are pretty much intact. He's claiming that we had a localized fire. It went out. It's just like these fire scenes that Larry Arnold purports to be SHC, but I've proven that you can replicate that fire scene under these conditions and, you know, end of SHC mystery. Do you know what? It's a complete fabricated lie. How can we say that and not be sued? Because we got from the producer of the program the original copy of the production that was sent to the network for broadcast. Yeah. And what the producer sent to us is just slightly different than the program that aired on national television. How does it differ? It differs in this one crucial way. Where John is standing in the burn chamber pointing out how localized the fire is, the fire suddenly becomes not localized. It's a raging inferno. <laughs> then a few nanoseconds are going to full room flashover. Fire suppression equipment is called in by Mr. DeHaan, and the fire is extinguished. <laughs> the, public, the viewing public never sees that footage. And yet Mr. DeHaan pops up at the end of the fire extinguishment to say, localized fire. Why? Just, I don't understand why the need, 
I guess you, I don't want to, I'm hesitant to use the term, but I'm going to say it. I don't understand the need to, for the cover-up. I don't understand the need to cover up spontaneous human combustion, unless they just don't want people, you know, to be terrified by yet another thing that could kill them in this world. But but why else? I just don't understand that. I mean, do you, I mean, do you, do you get where I'm going with that, Larry? I don't know. We get exactly where you're going with it. We get exactly where you're going with it, and it frustrates the hell out of us. The the cover up doesn't end there, and it, it's a good it's a good noun to choose for this. Um, the the next anti SHC experiment that was done for national television in order of chronology was a show that we did a couple years ago for National Geographic in their Is It Real series. Mm-hmm. They devoted an entire show to spontaneous human combustion, plus their hearts. And we told them that we had just learned about a possible case in Belgium of a survivor case. And if they were willing to fly us over to investigate, um, you know, we'd give them everything that we knew about SHC and we could see where the show went. They were eager to do that. They flew us over to Belgium. We had a great trip at their expense. Met the lady who was a victim of, we will frankly tell you right off the top, she was a victim of spontaneous combustion. We do not believe she was a victim of spontaneous human combustion, however, and there's no need probably to go into the case beyond that. But with the Nat Geo show, Is It Real?, of course, they had the... the, um, required debunker, in this case, Mark Benecki, another criminalist, high regarded in the international community. Um, He was with us during the investigation, and part of his explanation as to how these people burn up so completely is the Wick effect. So once again, he attempts to prove the Wick effect with a pig. I'm sorry, let us stand corrected. This is not John, Mark Benecki who did this. They, they, they featured once again John DeHaan for the pig experiment itself, whether Benecki was involved in the program. Mm-hmm. But they went back to the, the, the pig experiment again, once again with John DeHaan. This time John DeHaan wraps, the, wraps his pig sample in, in a blanket, does not use an accelerant this time, lights it. And as the cameraman told us, they ended up having another raging inferno in the burn chamber so quick did the fire engulf the area that um, the fireman um, had to, you know, I'm sorry, that the cameraman had to grab his camera, you know, and, and flee the room. He was afraid he was going to lose his very expensive camera gear there. Fire suppression equipment was once again rushed in. The fire was put out. You know, this was put on camera. John admits, well, the experiment didn't quite go as I planned, but nonetheless, if it had gone as planned, I would have disproven SHC. And believe it or not, at the end of the program, Nat Geo says, the wick effect works. <laughs> I'm going, no, it didn't. <laughs> you, you you showed, this time you were honest enough to show the evidence that the wick effect doesn't work. Why do you guys keep doing this? Why do you keep doing it? Um, we have pondered that question that you were kind enough to ask, and we come up with either this is extreme xenophobia, the scientific community in general, and television production staff either doesn't want to scare the public or is scared themselves that this is something that is just so horrific and so befuddling that they don't want to represent the evidence truthfully. Or it's a, it's a case of academic reputation being on the line, and they've not been trained or taught that SHC or these kinds of fires occur, and therefore we're just going to, you know, say whatever we need to say. It's kind of like a politician, if you will, you know. Yeah. We'll say what we need to say to, to convince our audience that what we're saying is true, whether or not it is. Strange. I just don't. Yeah. It's it's 
and, and, and it just goes back to the, the terrifying aspect of this, too, just because it's like a brain aneurysm. You know, you just you could hit you at any time, so you don't know. Our, our experience with the show, and, and frankly, no one would know this if we didn't talk about it, but we're willing to talk about it because the evidence is on our side. We're not going to be sued by for slander, and if we are, we're going to win our case. But it makes us question about what we see in all the paranormal shows that the television runs, you know, or, or any of these shows being completely honest with the evidence. Or are they filtering it to to slant the story to the conclusion that they want the viewing audience to see? And frankly, when, when a program network as reputable as National Geographic concludes what they did about spontaneous human combustion um, based on the evidence that they themselves filmed, we have to wonder, you know, where does veracity lie in these programs? What's the agenda here? It's strange. Now, you, you said you wanted to talk a little bit more about the Helen Conway case, so have at it. It sounds like this is one that might be one of your uh, personal favorites, and I know the, the audience loves the stories, so uh, we should definitely treat them with some more. So well, tell us about Helen Conway and, and her, her uh, tragic story. Yeah, the, the Conway case is another of our favorites, uh, in part because we discovered it. Um, we brought it to the public's attention after dogged research, and it has some really importantly crucial aspects to it. Um, okay. Here's the Conway case. Um, we, we were given permission as a non-professional firefighter um, to attend an advanced arson training course at the Pennsylvania Fire Science Academy, Pennsylvania Fire Academy, um, during our research, early years of research. This was special privilege that was given to us because um, some firefighters, fire instructors at the local community college knew of us, knew of our seriousness in trying to document fire phenomena in general and gave us permission to access this course because some of the material presented in this course you really don't want the public to know about. We were given permission to sit in. Okay. Very fascinating experience. We learned a lot. Um, at the end of the course, the fire instructor, Buzz Trebold, um, Pennsylvania firefighters would know that name immediately, highly regarded in, in our state as a very credible instructor. He said, just got some photographs of a fire case that some people would call spontaneous human combustion. It involves a woman sitting in a chair, yada, yada, yada. And we're thinking, ah, that's the research case. Because Mary Reeser in 1951 in St. Pete, Florida, burned up in a chair, leaving behind one foot, a few pieces of calcined vertebrae, and the rest of her 175-pound body plus the chair had burned down to a pile of rubble that weighed about eight pounds. Hmm. We're going to see photographs of the Reeser case. Great. Photographs are passed around the classroom. They come to us. Bingo. This isn't the Reeser case. There were two legs propped up against the front of the chair. The rest of this person's body is pretty much ash and rubble, amorphous mass of burned material. We know this is not the research case. This is a case up to that point in our research we had no idea about. You know, It didn't fit any of the descriptions in our database. You must have been excited. We were. Rushed up, rushed up to BuzzTree Bolt afterwards and said, <laughs> you know, did, did the classic journalism questions. Who, what, when, where, how? He didn't know who. He didn't know what. He didn't know how. As to where, he said, somewhere in southeastern Pennsylvania, and he didn't know when. So southeast Pennsylvania, for those not familiar with Pennsylvania geography, is basically Philadelphia. So we're talking a, an area with millions of people. Yeah. No name, no date, no place other than somewhere in the greater Philadelphia area, perhaps. <laughs> How do we track this sucker down? Sometime after that, we had the opportunity to meet with Dr. Wilton Marion Krogman, 
um, in his Lancaster office to interview him about his personal involvement in the Reeser case back in 1951, a case that he called impossible. Krogman was a world-renowned forensic anthropologist. His specialty was the effects of fire on the human body. He had done experiments, and he had never in his experimental career been able to replicate a fire scene like he found in St. Petersburg with Mary Reeser in 1951. He called it the Cinder Woman case. So completely consumed was she. Mm -hmm. um, classic SHC. In talking to Dr. Krogman um, about Reeser and about his career, he worked with Elliot Ness and had, had a fascinating career. Um, he said, you know, Arnold, I just got these photographs sent to me. You might be interested in them. And they were the same photographs that we had seen at the Fire Academy School. Nice. Okay. Now, was there a return address on the envelope? Yes, there was. We had our first contact. It wasn't too long after that until we were able to make contact with a gentleman named Robert Neslin, who happened to be the fire marshal for Upper Darby Township, which is in southeastern Pennsylvania, outside Philadelphia. And he was the one who took the photographs because he had been at the fire scene. We now had a place, a date, a name, and the name of the victim also, and that was Helen Conway. We made contact with Meslin. We subsequently made contact with Paul Hegarty, who was the fire chief at the time, and Harry Lott, who was the assistant fire marshal at the time for Upper Darby Township, three senior fire people involved in the case. Conway case is particularly intriguing because, A, it, it looks like classic SHC, two legs propped up against the front of a chair. The rest of Mrs. Conway's body is, is as we said, kind of an amorphous mass. Set of 12 photographs, black and whites, perfectly in focus. Meslin was the fire photographer at the time. He took a brilliant set of photographs, shared them willingly with us as he shared his recollection of this amazing case because he was completely bumfuddled by it. He told us, as did his firefighting colleagues, that collectively they had never seen in their decades of fire service any fire scene that came close, remotely close, to emulating the case of Conway, nor had they ever found a case since responding that, to that fire call in November of 1964 that looked anything like the Conway case. In fact, Meslin told us as he would go to fire conventions and fire training academies after having dealt with the Conway case in 64, he'd ask his fellow firefighters, you know, had they encountered fire scenes like this? And they told him that they didn't believe he had encountered what he described to them because such fire scenes don't happen. <laughs> he knew better. Anyway, the, the Conway fire scene is incredibly like classic SHC in that we have almost in complete incineration of the body itself with enough material left behind to show that the amorphous burned matter once had been a human body. Her left forearm is burned right to the bone, but you can see a charm bracelet um, hanging from the ulna. Um, against the arm of the chair. In fact, when when the smoke was ejected, in this case, there was intense black smoke filling the room in which Mrs. Conway burned up. But once again, there was no odor of noxious burning flesh. In fact, all the fire, the three fire, chief fire responders told us there was no odor present in the burn scene. Hmm. There was minimal burn damage to the walls behind the chair. The chair sat in a corner. Um, in fact, the fire pattern, the heat pattern indicates that this was a very hot, short-lived fire. No fire damage overhead. What is so crucially important about the Conway case, though, is the time factor. Yeah. And here we get really important because as the WIC proponents advocate, these are low-heat, 
long-term smoldering fires. The body has to have many, many hours to slowly render out and provide fuel for these fires that slowly consumes the human body to ash. Even though we've never heard of this happening in a crematorium, we've never heard of it happening in a summer barbecue, we've never heard it happening at a particular fast food chain that advertises how it grills its burgers over an open flame. We've never heard reports of hamburgers or steaks burning to ash on an open flame grill. Yeah. Nevertheless, the time element of the Conway case comes down to this. All three senior fire responders told us Mrs. Conway had no more than 30 minutes from the time that she was known to be alive in the second floor of her home in Upper Darby Township on that Sunday morning in November of 1964 until the fire crew arrived to put out a fire that really didn't need to be put out. No more than 30 minutes. They stand by that. In fact, Meslin, in writing to us, says, puts it at 21 minutes. Now, 21 minutes is damn fast. Yeah. A fire that, of the, that consumes the body to this extent. Even John Nahan admits to us that he can't explain it. But yeah, yeah. 21 minutes is the upper limit because in sitting down with Bob Mezzan, we, we worked out the timeline because timelines in SAT are very important. Mm -hmm. The 21 minutes represents the time, as we were told by the fire department, <laughs> represents the time from when Mrs. Conway was known to be alive in the house until the fire department arrived, ejected the smoke, and Mr. Meslin could take camera in, in hand and start taking his photographs. In order for Mr. Meslin to take the photographs, he had to first get to the fire scene, leave the fire scene, go to his house, pick up his camera, return to the fire scene, during which the firemen are ejecting the smoke from the from the burned room, yeah. allowing then Mr. Meslin, the fire photographer, later the fire marshal, to begin taking those 12 dramatic fire photographs. When you factor in all those time elements from the 21-minute window, what you come down with is six minutes, 360 seconds from the time that Mrs. Conway was known to be alive until the fire department arrived initially at the fire scene to find a fire scene with a fire that did not need to be put out. Six minutes. <sighs> That's for a body to be burned to the extent that Mrs. Conway's body was burned. And the photographs clearly depict this. To have that done in six minutes just wipes out the wig effect. Yeah, it's mind-boggling. It defies explanation, even. It's, 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 you know, do we know of, I mean, it, it, is there a natural speed at which fire would consume like that? Or, you know, I'm just, I'm just baffled here. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and thank you. You should be baffled. Um, if you understand anything about the effects of fire under normal conditions on the human body, you must be baffled. Um, we've looked at a number of cases, some with photographic documentation of people who have been burned up in conventional fires. Um, we have a case not too far from our office here in a neighboring community where a gentleman was working on his lawnmower in the basement of his home. Stupid dimwit was smoking. <laughs> Cigarette smoking. Um, open flame, guess what? The gasoline fumes ignited, burned up himself, and burned up the entire structure around him. The, the building burned basically to the ground, and yet the firefighters, after they put out the blaze, could go in, pick up the body intact, take it to the morgue where it could be photographed and autopsied. The body, though, obviously severely burned, fourth-degree burned, remained intact and could be autopsied. See, that's, yeah, that Mrs. flies Conway, in the face of what we're talking about here, yeah. Mrs. Reeser, Dr. Bentley, and hundreds of other examples that we could regale you with 
when intact, they were dry, calcined powder. Strange. Now, I, I, I kind of consider this program especially uh, part of, like, the historical record. Since this is our big showcase of SpawnCom, let's talk about the Mary Reeser case, because that, okay. that sounds like that is, you know, the other big daddy of SHC, if you will. Yeah, it is. Until our research became uh, publicized, the, the Reeser case was the case to, to argue for or against classic spontaneous human combustion. Mrs. Reeser met her flaming, or Mrs. Reeser is a Pennsylvania native, and, and for whatever reason, a lot of the classic cases are the, the, the best ones that we've been able to uncover uh, often have a Pennsylvania connection. Uh, maybe it's not by happenstance that we were born and bred here in Pennsylvania, but anyway. Mrs. Reeser spent most of her life here in Pennsylvania in the, in the Keystone State, but in the latter days of her life, she had briefly retired, relocated to St. Petersburg, Florida, was unhappy down there, and was planning actually to come back to Pennsylvania when she met her flaming demise. The story is this. On uh, the evening of July 1st, 1951, she was visited by her son, uh, Dr. Reeser, and by some friends, and she was left alone in her apartment at one end of a hallway on Cherry Street, um, seen last at 9 o'clock in a bathrobe in some satin slippers, um, had taken two second-old sleeping tablets, and presumably was smoking a cigarette or it was thought she might be about to light a cigarette. Mm -hmm. Fast forward overnight to, oh, by the way, uh, the following morning about 4.20 a.m., um, the landlady um, um, heard some commotion, awakened, but saw or just determined nothing was amiss, went back to sleep. And the clock, it was determined later in Mary Reese's apartment, had stopped at 4.20 a.m. Hmm. Probably significant, but anyway. Fast forward a few more hours to about, I think, if memory serves, around 8 o'clock, Western Union Messenger arrives with a telegram from Mary Reeser. Basically, the telegram was to confirm to Mary Reeser that all arrangements had been made. She could relocate back to her beloved state of Pennsylvania. Messenger knocked on the door, got no response from Mary Reeser, went down to the other end of the hallway, uh, roused Pansy Carpenter, the landlady, and said, got a telegram for Mrs. Reeser. Pansy said, I'll take it down to the hallway. She went down to the hallway, knocked on the door, no response, touched the doorknob, the doorknob to Reeser's apartment was warm to the touch. She screamed. Two painters walking um, at a home across the street heard the screams, rushed over, knocked down the door, and walked into a scene that completely horrified them. Mrs. Reeser was in one corner of her little apartment, found burned to ash, as was the chair in which she had last been seen seated. Fire damage was localized basically to the chair and to the body. Left behind, as we said earlier, was one foot, the satin slipper still on the foot, a few pieces of calcined vertebrae, and a skull that it was said at the time by the first responders to have shrunken to the size of a teacup, an orange, or a grapefruit. <laughs> Two firefighters, one of whom we actually interviewed, uh, Nelson Aders, actually showed up and shoveled up the ashes and took them to a morgue for autopsy. Dr. Krogman, whom we mentioned earlier, happened to be vacationing in St. Pete at the time. As we said, he was a world-renowned forensic anthropologist, skilled in the effects of fire upon the human body. And he took a personal as well as professional interest in the research case. And he was confounded and befuddled and perplexed by the fire scene that Mrs. Weezer left behind. He called it impossible. 
he said that only in his experiments when he had exposed cadavers to 3,000 degrees for 12 uninterrupted hours in a retort could he achieve reduction of a human body to the extent that was found in Mary Reese's apartment. He said, you just don't get powder. He told us that face-to-face. He told us that in his published reports of the Reese case. You just don't get powder, except that you do in the Reese case, and you do in the Bentley case, and you do in the Conway case, and yeah. the others. He was perplexed by the, by the absence of the characteristic noxious stents of burned flesh at the fire scene. And in this case, there was once again that redolent, perfume-like aroma that pervaded the victim's room. Impossible, said Dr. Krogman. Well, there was a lot that was impossible in the Reeser case, and that was just one aspect of it. <laughs> there just seemed to be nothing that couldn't be possible in the Reeser case that didn't make sense. We're going to quote Dr. Krogman here specifically. Quote, I have posed the problem to myself again and again, remarking about how to explain the Reeser fire scene. And I always end up rejecting it in theory, but facing it in apparent fact. He had to throw in the adjective apparent. You know, the fact couldn't stand alone. It had to be apparent. Mm-hmm. His conclusion, the cinder woman couldn't happen, but it did. End quote. So here's the mystery. This, this, as we said earlier, when we did our research initially down at the Library of Congress, we went to the local newspapers. They reported this as straight news. Um, for one month, this was front page story in the local newspapers. You know, how did Mrs. Reeser burn this way? Did she fall asleep having taken a sleeping tablet and dropped a cigarette on her lap? That's what the naysayers argue to this day. Um, but there are lots of chair fires in this country. Some 4,500 people, unfortunately, every year die in fires in this country. Many of them are the result of smoking mishaps. But if everybody was burning up as completely as did Mary Reeser from smoking mishaps, we wouldn't be talking about a mystery. We'd be talking about a conventional fire scene, wouldn't we? Mm-hmm. We wouldn't be talking about fire scientists covering up the evidence and misrepresenting the evidence, as we've already suggested some of them are willing to do in order to not have to deal with spontaneous human combustion. It's humbling in a sense, too, because when you really consider it, you know, fire was you know, it probably predates the wheel as this humankind's great first invention, and we still don't really understand it, apparently, if, if we're still flummoxed by spontaneous human combustion. Yep. As, as we said earlier, um, the debunkers really give us some of our best arguments for the reality of SpawnCom. First, they're, they're, some of them are very quick to call the whole body of evidence as a hoax. Um, we'll cite specifically Dr. Adelson, who was a coroner, a medical professional, who claimed that he he did a study of spontaneous human combustion, but yet when he was handed photographs of the Conway case and and Dr. Bentley and asked to explain how these fires could occur, he called the photographs hoaxes, direct (laughs) quote. And he was asked, well, how do you reach that assessment? What is your conclusion that these photographs are hoaxes? And and keep in mind, this is before Photoshop days. Yeah. When if you're going to create one of these photos, you had to go to a great deal of expense and you had to have a great deal of skill to recreate these fire scenes if they were indeed hoaxes. And his his retort was, well, the human body simply doesn't burn this way, therefore these photographs have to be hoaxes because they can't depict real fire scenes. Well, that's clearly not true. We mentioned earlier Dr. Benecki in connection with the the Nat Geo program. He has said to us and in writing about spontaneous human combustion that there are no cases on record in which internal organs are burned as completely or more completely than external body parts. Therefore, these fires can't originate within the body, and therefore, spontaneous human combustion cannot occur. Well, 
look at the evidence from Mrs. Weiser, look at the evidence that we have for Dr. Bentley, look at the evidence that we have for many other cases that we document in great detail in our book of Blaze, and you will find no evidence whatsoever in any of the medical reports of these victims that mention a pancreas, a liver, a heart, the lungs. All those internal organs are ashen, and yet we have a lower leg left behind for George Mott in upstate New York. We have Dr. Bentley's lower leg. We have Mrs. Reese's foot. So we do have external body parts left. So Mark Benecki's explanation and position to debunk SHC is disproven. Yeah, it's almost like I, I can't explain this, so it couldn't have happened. Right. And I'll come back to these people is you simply can't suppose away the facts. You obviously can do that, but then you're not being honest with the evidence. You're not being honest as a scientist. You're certainly not being honest in your methodology. It's it's unfortunate. It's it's at, at the risk of sort of jumping to the end because I have a lot more stuff I want to talk to you about. But do you think, given the climate of the experts, quote unquote? You know, do you think that we're ever going to get to a point here where SHC is given its proper due as as real as as a viable uh, phenomenon? We 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 sincerely hope that that would have happened with the publication of Ablaze back in 1995. Um, it did not, sadly. We've we've quipped that probably SHC will be conti- will continue to be vehemently, ferociously, and viciously debunked by mainstream orthodoxy and science until some very high-profile public person, such as a president or Hollywood actor or actress, goes up in a ball of blue flame in front of a bank of television cameras. <laughs> yeah. At which point, mainstream science will say, oh, we've known about this for centuries. We talked about this back in the 1700s, and there's, you know. Yeah. But then they're still going to have to explain it, aren't they? And they haven't been able to explain it yet because under those circumstances, clearly the Wick effect will once again be blown away and they're going to have to come up with something else. Well, maybe they'll come up with some of the theories that we we develop and, and postulate and speculate about in a blaze and say, well, maybe Larry Arnold got it right after all and we just should have been paying attention to him all these years and whatever. That's, yeah, that's the maybe, hope, right? Maybe, maybe we'll get our Nobel Prize in medicine posthumously. <laughs> Don't talk like that, Larry. We'll we'll get it before you're gone. Don't worry. Now, I, I've also seen here that um, beyond the strange smells, there's also uh, one of the other recurring sort of uh, themes or patterns, if you will, of uh, the SHC cases is some kind of greasy film. Sometimes, yeah, yeah. Um, if not, often not so much greasy film, but but a baked on caramel coloring. Um, in the Mott case in upstate New York. Um, which happened in the spring of 1986. This is the retired firefighter who was discovered by his son um, having burned through. Actually, the fire scene itself was discovered by his son, Kendall Mott, but the actual nature of the fire that consumed Kendall's father was not discovered by Kendall but by a neighbor because Kendall never stepped far enough into the home of his father to actually see the nature of the fire damage that consumed his dad. but George Mott, a retired firefighter in, in Crown Point, New York, up near Ticonderoga, in late March of 1986, managed somehow to burn himself to powder, burn himself through his bedding, through the mattress, through the floor planks under the bed, and into an earthen crawl space underneath his 20 by 40 foot tinderbox of a home. 
without burning much of anything else, with a few exceptions, this is a very complex and very confusing fire scene we devote, as we do to some of these classic cases, a full chapter in a blaze to the Mott case. Mm-hmm. Um, it's far too complex to go over in detail in, an, in, an, in, in this kind of uh, an environment, in this kind of discussion. Yeah. Get the book if you want to know more. Absolutely. But we were at the fire scene shortly after it occurred. We can attest that there was absolutely no flame or heat damage to the ceiling directly above George Mott's bed. So there's no pillar of hot gas going up to the ceiling. Much as in the the Conway case and in the Bentley case, it appears that these victims actually burned down. They didn't burn up, which is the vernacular. These people burned downward, physically, literally burned downward, leaving behind a a real mystery. the, the two key local first responders at the Mott fire scene have both told us their conclusion, professional conclusion, is based on best evidence and the ex- exclusion of all other possibilities, George Mott died by spontaneous human combustion. And that is extraordinarily rare for fire professionals, emergency response people, to to reach that assessment and state publicly, but, but they have... And that would be Bob Purdy and Tony Moret. Um, did a bang-up job as first responders in the initial investigation. They invited us to come in with our background and expertise and help them. They were looking for answers, as were we. And we all have concluded and have gone on the record as saying, to the best of our abilities, based on best evidence and thorough investigation, Mr. Mott did not burn by the wick effect. He did not burn by an electrical arc from an outlet in his bedroom. He burned up or burned down by spontaneous human combustion. Strange. Now, what? Now, just to take us back to that caramel coloring, uh, tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah. What? What is? What is this like? Some kind yeah. of just how, how we got sidetracked with that is that having been at the Mott fire scene and documented it thoroughly throughout the Mott fire scene um, in that 20 by 40 foot home. Um, caramel coloring was baked on a lot of the horizontal surfaces, very little of the vertical surfaces, but on countertops, on um, silverware that was exposed to the open air, yeah. on desktops and so on, that, that caramel coloring was present in many, of the, in many of the places in his home. Probably due, once again, to carbon content vaporizing off the body as it is being consumed by whatever is the energy that is doing the quote-unquote burning. Uh, in many of these cases, we don't believe that we're dealing with an oxidizing type of fire to begin with. We're dealing with something that is biochemical or bioelectrical or, or plasma-like, perhaps even occurring at the quantum level within the body. But yeah. the, the, the fat, the, the carbon content of the body is, is released very quickly, and what is not consumed by the nature of the energy itself quickly spreads through the local environment and is baked on by, by the heat of that energy and so we can it it really looks like caramel coating is what it looks like and you can you can scratch it with your fingernail in some cases weird see that is this is a, such a strange thing and then in fact that's what that's what tipped off Kendall Mott initially when he, he went to visit his father um, he noticed that the the interior of the house seemed incredibly dark in fact he first thought that that his father had installed new window glass or new drapes that made the interior of the home so dark and actually what made it dark was this caramel coating that had been baked on the window glass Ooh, that's just creepy and, and in the article you sent me I mean we're already dealing with a very strange phenomenon here but I but something stood out to me that really completely made me flip my lid and what was that I'm excited to tell you um, in the in the article you say 
I'm going to quote you here. Uh, Many of these blazes sight upon straight lines, sometimes hundreds of miles long and provocatively hinting at a heretofore unsuspected cartography for combustion. What is this, Larry? What are you talking about? I'm stunned, and I want to know more. Great. Well, delighted you want to learn more and are asking about this. This is one of our many discoveries as we've taken our research into spontaneous human combustion, wherever the facts tend to lead us to Mm -hmm. go. It occurred to us one moment that um, you mentioned the the Bermuda Triangle earlier in this interview. We've been down to the Bermuda Triangle many times, um, did submarine archaeology down there on one leg. There is nothing, despite Ivan Sanderson's coining of that phrase, that indicates to us that the so-called Bermuda Triangle area of anomalies, and there are some strange things that occur in that area generally, but there's nothing that tells us that the anomalies occur in a specifically shaped triangular area. Yeah. But geographically, it's interesting because our database is fairly large, and you need a large database to do this. Um, we believe that we're the first person who even had the, the sufficient data to, to attempt this project, was to look for patterns of these unusual anomalous fires. And looking for patterns involved, among other things, plotting the location of these cases on a map. And because we had more cases per capita of strange fires in the United Kingdom, we took out a big map of the United Kingdom and started plotting case after case of SHC and also spontaneous fires that occurred in buildings and other objects on a map to see if we could find a pattern. What we found was that many of the sites of anomalous fires could be connected if you laid a straight line over the map. Obviously, you can connect by straight line two points. Mm-hmm. Nothing mysterious there, basic high school geometry, even elementary geometry. Connecting three points by a straight line, it gets interesting, but statistically is not real significant. The statistical significance comes when you can connect four points, four allegedly random points by a straight line. Yeah. Then we're starting to look for something that might have merit. What we found in our plotting of cases of anomalous fires in the United Kingdom is that more than 80% of the strange fires that we know about that have occurred in the United Kingdom that we knew about in 1975 could be connected by straight alignments. Some alignments connecting six, seven, perhaps as many as a dozen cases of strange combustion events. That is significantly statistically important. Absolutely. That is just, it just adds a whole other layer of bizarreness to this thing, Larry. I'm just, you're, you're leaving me in a quandary tonight, and I love it. <laughs> One of the things, one of the things a good theory should do is, if you apply the theory, it should lead you to new discoveries that the theory posits, or in this case, the hypothesis posits. Mm-hmm. What we did in, in one of our trips, one of our research trips to the United Kingdom, was to go to areas that the fire lane map, as we call it, the the cartography of combustion, suggested would be hotspots for perhaps cases that we had not known about. Right. It worked. We went up to the Lincolnshire area, which is a has a actual a triangle of fire um, in in northeastern England. We sat down with the fire brigade commander for that jurisdiction, introduced ourselves, explained why we were there, and asked if he had in his fire career in his fire files any cases that might be described as classic SHC. His first response was, "Nope, don't know of any." couldn't because what you're asking about basically doesn't happen, although I've heard mention of it, rumors of it. And then he paused, he got really quiet and became very pensive, and we'll never forget this moment. It still sends chills through our body. 
he pushed himself away from his desk and got lost in thought for a minute or two, and then came back, sat upright, looked at us, and said, well, you know, a couple years ago, and what he described to us was a case that fits the classic SHC virus. person living alone in a tinderbox of an environment had been seen for several days. When the home was entered by first responders, they looked, walked through the home looking for the person who lived there. They couldn't find him. Um, this was a place that actually had tarp, you know, oil-soaked um, paper with <laughs> windows. So we're talking about a really combustible tinderbox yeah. here. What they eventually discovered in walking through the room, which was basically had little narrow aisles on either side of which were stacks of newspaper and other highly combustible materials, the firefighters had actually been walking through the ashes of the person who lived there. Ooh. He had burned to ash between piles of newspaper. And we looked at the fire brigade commander and said, you know, that sounds just like spontaneous human combustion to us based on our research. And he said, well, you know, I kind of have to agree with you. So we found that case by following the mapping of the fire lanes on this map of the United Kingdom. Several years later, in 1980, there was a case that happened in, in western UK, in Wales. It happened in a little teeny town that we had not even could find on our original map. We had to go to a gazetteer. We first looked on our fire lane, on our fire lanes, the two of them that we had plotted that shot through Wales, and one of those fire lanes shot right through the little town where Henry Thomas, in January of 1980, experienced what could be described as classic spontaneous human combustion. So the hypothesis of the cartography of combustion has led us to new discoveries, i.e. new cases that we did not know about, but the theory said should lead us to those cases. So we think the theory is really incredibly interesting. We devote, in fact, two chapters in a blaze to the alignment of these mysterious fires. And it raises some real perplexing issues for geologists, for geophysicists, for the insurance industry in particular. Exactly, yeah. Well, it should eventually, hopefully, lead us to answers in a way. Because at least we're, you know, that that, that suggests some means of p potential prediction or some methodology of, 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 you know, getting ahead of this in some way, too. Exactly. It raises the question, why do these incredibly rare, bizarre, localized, spontaneous combustions occur in linear patterns over hundreds of miles? Could there be more fires that Larry Arnold and, and British researchers haven't yet discovered that could be located by following these, these fire trackways? We believe so. And then what is the nature of the energy that causes fires to occur in linear patterns in the United Kingdom? What's your like, most recent case uh, here in the United States for potential spawncom? Um, the most recent case we probably stuck our reputation on in the United States was is, is um, Kay Fletcher back in 1995, 19, 1996. We keep getting those two years mixed up in our consciousness. It's one of those two. Uh, more Slightly more recent case from British Columbia, also a survivor case. Um, this year, we've, we've had leads on two cases, neither of which we believe is spontaneous human combustion. Um, we're talking to you in June, so if memory serves, this was back in April. There was a gentleman at a porn shop in San Francisco who rushed out of the porn shop ablaze, collapsed in the street. Um, our suspicion is there was probably a huffing incident, and uh, he caught himself ablaze back in the viewing booth. Um, but we don't know that 
with absolute certainty. Um, we still have to follow up. Um, we're waiting for the, the San Francisco Department to wrap up their investigation so that we can get access to their conclusions and, and their evidence for the case. We don't think it's SHC, but there's enough curiosity about it that we're not willing to dismiss it outright without further investigation. Yeah. Jumping back here to the to the trends that you discuss uh, in this paper you sent me, you say uh, this will be interesting to, to explore because it sounds like you, well, obviously you wrote the paper here before 2004 because you say uh, it appears to be cyclical, this being uh, spontaneous human combustion, with peak occurrences about every 33 years and secondary cycles of 11 years. And uh, you say that the next peak is projected for circa 2004, and then they say, jokingly, uh, we'll have to wait and see, yes? So did that bore, bore itself out for you that it seems to have peaked again in uh, 2004? Right. The prediction for, for a spike in SpawnCom events in 2004 was based on best evidence at the time that we had available. Mm-hmm. That spike, to our knowledge, did not occur, and, and had it occurred, we, we do believe we would, have, we would have learned about enough cases to, to support that cycle for 2004. It did not happen. So either the, the um, analysis of the preceding century's worth of data um, is slightly faulty, or something occurred to change the cyclical nature that should have happened in 2004, the nature of the energy or whatever factors caused the preceding 30-year cycle to occur over several centuries. Uh, Something changed and it did not happen in 2004. Um, We don't know the answer to that other than to tell you that the, the anticipated spike in 2004 did not manifest to the best of our knowledge. So have you abandoned the theory of the cyclical nature or... Does that still hold water? Just like as you said, maybe maybe something has happened to change the cycle. We have not abandoned the the the, the, the mathematics that led us to that prediction. Um, we've also found um, in in looking for other kinds of patterns with astrophysics, for example, that um, we found a correlation. Many of the classic cases of SpawnCom tend to concur with episodes of high solar activity, um, hmm. very strong geomagnetic solar activity. Uh, tends to coincide with many cases of SHC. Uh, we've been recently having a lot of very active solar activity, which means a lot of very active disturbance in the Earth's magnetosphere. In fact, it's predicted that maybe after this interview ends here in a few minutes, we can go outside and see if the aurora borealis is visible over south-central Pennsylvania tonight because of very recent solar storms. Um, if that connection is indeed valid, um, we would anticipate learning about a recent case of SHC because of that increased solar activity. Um, Again, we're dealing with hypotheses at this point. Some of them may be completely fallacious, but we will not know until more evidence presents itself to us. Absolutely. Well, it sounds like you've done an amazing job here of, of of researching this. Is there much of a community for SpawnCom, or are you sort of like the lone voice in the wilderness here? There have been a couple other researchers who have done credible research and publication, but it does appear to the best of our knowledge, humbly, that we're the guy who's spearheaded it. And to our knowledge, again, we have the largest database. Um, and we've, we've certainly been prominent in trying to get the public to have a broader awareness of this real Fortean enigma. Um, what we learned in, in our various college studies and taking fire science courses, um, both at uh, the local college level here at the Pennsylvania Fire Academy, and in talking with fire officials around the world, 
is that one should always be prepared for the unexpected, to be open-minded, to be able to defend your assessment of a fire scene in court, if need be, and also to enjoy as well as to respect a challenge. And all those things we have attempted to do in the 30-plus years that we've devoted to documenting these incredibly bizarre, mysterious blazes that history has called spontaneous human combustion. Where can people get a hold of a blaze, the mysterious fires of spontaneous human combustion, your big book here? There are two easy ways. First, of course, is Amazon. Um, just go to Amazon, type in a blaze or Larry Arnold, and you'll come up with that, um, the, the way to order it through Amazon, of course. The other way is to go to our website, parascience, P-A-R-A-Science.com, and drill down and uh, email us an order or request for the book, and we'll ship it out to you. Um, or to anyone who orders it through the website. Uh, the list price is $24.95. It's 500 pages long. It is hardback. We have some first edition copies left. In fact, if you go to Amazon, there are some people that have been trying to sell first editions, actually first edition used copies for $80 a, a crack. <laughs> um, we can do better than that, and we'll autograph it for free if you'd like. We make, a, we make a guarantee with our blaze that we don't know any other author has ever made. The guarantee is this. You buy the book if you've not read it before, and after completed, uh, com after completing your reading of the book, if you can honestly tell us that you have not learned something new by reading a blaze, we will refund the purchase price. Wow. We are so convinced that our research is both solid, archivally based, as well as grounded in our firsthand interviews with fire responders around the world that there is no other source for this information than within the covers of a blaze. That's a bold uh, proclamation, but just based on this conversation, I have a feeling that uh, that guarantee's held up over the years because, I mean, you've blown my mind here over the course of these last two hours. So Now, I noticed in the article you sort of uh, put forward the, the suggestion for, I guess you could say, a new, a new moniker for SHC. Super uh, yeah. hyperthermic carbonization. So is that just sort of yeah. a, an attempt to move away from the, you know, from the the bizarre, I guess you could say, or or the, uh, you know, the tantalizing or the, so the scandalous, if you will, uh, version that is spontaneous human combustion. Yeah, yeah. Spontaneous human combustion itself is 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 a three-word phrase that really rankles the ire of mainstream fire professionals, as we've already explained this evening. Um, and it, it, it has a connotation of, of, of the supernatural, of the eerie, of things that, that scientists don't like to deal with. Right, it's loaded. So we, we, we like the acronym SHC, so we came up with super hyperthermic carbonization, which is another very good descriptor for classic SpawnCom fire scenes. You know, we're dealing with obviously what everyone interprets as combustion. It involves a human being, and it appears to evoke very high temperature, super hyperthermic. So we keep the acronym SHC and make it sound less intimidating to some members of the professional fire services community. As you bring that up, um, we've also coined or, or proposed another aspect to the professional firefighting community. That is the degree of burn classification. When we grew up, there were three degrees of burns, first, second, third. Mm -hmm. Third degree being, being the most severe, first degree being reddening of the skin, second degree being blistering of the skin. As our research unfolded over the decades, fire science came up with a fourth degree burn classification. 
Third degree is now deep burning of the skin. Fourth degree is when the burn gets down into the bone. But what we're dealing with in terms of classic SHC fire scenes, Mary Reeser, Dr. Bentley, George Mott, etc., goes way beyond fourth degree burn classification. Way beyond. So we have coined the new classification for a fifth degree burn injury, which would encompass classic SHC fire scenes. And when we were last meeting with um, fire officials in Scotland Yard, New Scotland Yard, we sat down and went over the four classifications of burns and said, you know, the photographs that we were showing to you fall beyond fourth degree, would you not agree? And the gentleman said, yep, you're right. You know, this is a whole new burn classification. And we said, um, since you guys are putting together a new textbook at, at this very moment, maybe you would wish to include in it a new classification, the fifth degree burn. So if that was done, we don't know that it was. He said it probably would be if he was going to pursue it. If you ever hear about a fifth-degree burn classification, you can credit Larry Arnold for, for, for um, proposing that and getting it officially recognized because these classic SHC fire scenes clearly warrant this new burn classification category. Yeah, they stand alone as something truly, truly strange. Um, and and I just, I'm just, I'm just so thrilled with this conversation. I've had such a good time. I, I just can't thank you enough here, Larry. Looking at the uh, the publication date for Ablaze, that was back in 1995. Obviously, you do a lot of speaking engagements, a lot of media appearances, and uh, write a lot of articles. What's going on here for you in 2011 and beyond? Do you have any plans, you know, for a sequel to Ablaze or a follow-up or of some kind, or even, you know, some other avenue of, of exploration? Because I see here and. You know, I'm 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 already gonna say we're gonna have you back on the program again in the future because I'll, I'll be honest, I haven't had a chance to sit down and read a blaze all the way through. So I'm dying to to really dig into that and have you back on to even get further into this mystery. But I see you've written about the uh, the parapsychological impact of the accident at Three Mile Island. Sounds like something I would love to explore with you, but we've already taken up enough of your time tonight. So what what do you have going on here in 2011 and beyond? Well, we'll continue to hold down our six jobs daily, which keeps us pretty busy. <laughs> Obviously, continue to look for evidence in cases of spontaneous human combustion. Um, we're looking for understanding as to how this phenomenon occurs, when it occurs, where it occurs, and obviously why it occurs. Um, as we quipped earlier, we, we'd like to someday receive notification from the Nobel Prize Committee that they've chosen us and our research to, to warrant a, a prize in, in, in medicine and or in physics. Um, remains to be seen. We're very optimistic. <laughs> um, other than that, you know, um, whatever whatever the fortune world drops in our lap, we have an interest in, in, in the Thunderbird phenomenon, uh, probably near and dear to our heart, next only to spontaneous combustion itself at this stage in our life. We, we, we're interested in a lot of environmental issues here in Pennsylvania. We're dealing with the Marcellus Shale drilling issue right now and its impact on the environment. Back in the 70s and Actually, even in the 60s, but mostly in the 70s, we were very active in the in the nuclear movement. Um, you alluded to our first book, the parapsychological impact of the accident at Three Mile Island. That nuclear power plant and its near meltdown in 1979 is is a 15-minute fast drive from our offices. Uh, we were very active in in that issue back in the 70s, and indeed had written an article that predicted, precognized, if you will, um, the Class 9 accident at Unit 2 at Three Mile Island found many other people in the area who had also been psychically forewarned in various means about that particular accident. That could Weird. be another show for you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we definitely got to get you back on and talk about that. 
you must be then, then you must have your ears tingling here with all this stuff going on in Japan. Uh yeah, the 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 tsunami and its impact on 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 Fukushima was was horrifying and but as we said to some folks in the NRC recently not at the least bit unexpected. Uh, we were surprised that they were planning to power a nuclear power plant and affect several reactors with batteries. Um, that, frankly, astonished us, but that's also the case here in the United States. You know, um, when cooling pumps go down and, and on-site electricity is lost and off-site power lines are, are down or blown up or, or washed away, um, we are relying on perhaps only four hours of battery backup for Indian Point north of New York City. That's a very scary scenario to contemplate, knowing what happened to those folks in Japan. Absolutely, yeah, terrifying. Well, Larry, I can't thank you enough here for coming on the show. As I said, the two hours have absolutely flown by, and I've been on the edge of my seat the entire time, and I've just been thrilled with this conversation. As I said at the beginning of the show, I had a feeling it was going to be a classic, and that premonition was definitely borne out here over the last two hours. This was an addition to the program that I am thrilled to have produced, so happy to have had you on the program, one that I will put into the archive and highly recommend for people for years to come. This has been an amazing conversation. People should check out your website, parascience.com, and of course, check out his book, Ablaze, The Mysterious Fires of Spontaneous Human Combustion. As we said here at the beginning of the show, this is a centuries-old mystery, and the man we have to thank for it, really, for, as I punningly joked earlier, keeping the torch alive on spontaneous human combustion these last three decades has been Larry Arnold. Chances are, folks, if you've heard of spontaneous human combustion in the last 30 years, it's as a result of Larry's work. So, Larry, I can't thank you enough, and I can't compliment you and and say how much I appreciate your dedication to this mystery over the years and what has, I'm sure, been just a series of uh, detractors and skeptics and you keep your head down, and you keep collecting the cases, and you keep putting the research out there, and you keep this story alive, which is really so commendable. And I thank you once again for coming on the show. Well, thank you for your gracious hosting, for your gracious comments, and for respecting this subject as well as our research. It's a difficult one to do. It, it, it commands respect, and you have certainly given it to the subject and to us this evening, for which we are most grateful and appreciative. Bless you, and bless everyone who's tuning in tonight and checks, checks out our interview through your archive. Well, thanks again, Larry. You're most welcome. That does it for this installment of BOA Audio Season 6. Big, big thanks to Larry Arnold for coming on the show. Check out his website, www.parascience.com. And, of course, go out and get your hands on his book, Ablaze, The Mysterious Fires of Spontaneous Human Combustion. Let's move on now to BOA Audio listener feedback. We've got three emails in the till, plus a cool story for you at the end. First email comes from Stephen, no hometown listed. He says, I'm just some dude from Ohio that works a boring day job. What you do allows me to actually have fun while that's going on. I've only really been interested in a couple of shows regarding the esoteric. The other is the Canadian one with Richard Surrett. I've been meaning to write to say thanks for a while. Stephen from Ohio. There you go. Thank you for writing in, Stephen. I get really humbled when I get emails from folks who say they listen to the show at their job or when they're working out or, you know, in, I guess you could say, inconvenient places they turn to BOA Audio. And that is really cool to me that I'm helping someone else out there get through a rough work day or a boring work day. So 
you know, thanks, Stephen. That's really cool. And I uh, hope you're tuning in right now and uh, make sure you file those TPS reports. Next email comes from Andy in the UK. He says, just been reading this. And if you were able to find somebody to speak to about it, I think it would make for an absolutely fascinating show. And then he sends a link to an incident called the Dyatlov Pass Accident, which happened in the USSR or Russia in the 1950s. Stunning stuff. Look it up on Google if you want to know more, folks. It's spelled D-Y-A-T-L-O-V Pass Accident. And uh, it is some uh, weird stuff. A bunch of hikers went off into the woods and uh, never came back again. That's the... (laughs) That's the short version of it. It's uh, quite detailed uh, if you uh, look it up and find the information on it on the Internet. He includes a link here, but it's massive, and I I just can't read that right now. Uh, To get back to Andy's email, he says, I've been a listener for quite a while, but if you've already covered this previously, please let me know so I can go through the archives and hunt it down. Keep up the good work. Cheers, Andy in the U.K. Uh, no, I have not covered this topic before, Andy. Very obscure stuff. I think the best guy I've talked to about this would be Paul Stonehill, who we had on the program talking about the paranormal and UFOs in the former Soviet Union, but we did not get into this uh, Dyatlov Pass accident. I'll look into it more and uh, see if I can find anything about it that we could explore on the program. My only concern, really, though, is how do you stretch that into a full show. Maybe if we get Paul Stonehill back on the program, we could definitely talk about it then. I'll be sure to put it sort of uh, in the files here next to Paul Stonehill's name, and uh, we'll look into it further as well. Thank you for writing in, Andy. Final email comes from Steph, No Hometown Listed, and coming to us literally moments before I recorded this segment. She says, when do we get the human spontaneous combustion show? I love you, man, and I'm peeing myself in anticipation for your Spawn Calm show. I've managed to dig up a couple of Larry Arnold interviews elsewhere on the web, but the sound quality is so execrable, is that even a word? I don't know, execrable, that even I can't bear to listen to them. It's just made me more desperate, even antsier, waiting as the interminable days drone on with still no combustion, spontaneous or intentional. Let me tell you, I'm starting to get pretty agitated. Or, I don't know, maybe it's those 42 Diet Cokes I drank before lunch. Just wanted to let you know how much your podcasts mean to some of us out here in internet land, but enough yakking. Time to get back to refreshing the banal homepage. Best wishes, Steph. That was a well-written email from Steph. Thank you for writing in, Steph. Uh, It came in right on the wire. I figured I'd include it here on the show since it came in just as I was about to record the uh, closing comments on the program. Here you go, Steph. Here is your human spontaneous combustion show. Hopefully you have managed not to pee yourself. I think the peeing yourself in anticipation, it loops around here looking at the email to your 42 Diet Cokes that you drank before lunch. So I think we found a causal issue here that can exonerate the weight that is BOA Audio. But anyway, hopefully you enjoyed the program and... uh, you know, Doug, our SpawnCom showcase. And, of course, thank you for writing in. Now, before I give out the uh, the contact info, let me share a cool story with you. I'm going to make it nice and short. A few episodes back, I read an email from a guy named Jim in Michigan. Oh, the Ouija board episode, actually. It was on the Ouija board episode. Anyway, he was in New York for a convention, and 
had the weekend free, shot me an email, wanted to go out for beers, actually drove up to BOA HQ, which is both awesome and kind of scary in a way. I don't know, I shouldn't have given my address to him, but I did because I'm crazy. But it worked out okay, I'm still alive, so, you know, we're one for one on that one. Jim came up, we went out for beers, had a great time, you know. He shared some awesome stories from Michigan, and I was happy to share some behind-the-scenes BOA stories with him, and mostly just get really drunk. And it was a great time, so thanks to Jim for making the trip up here, you know, a weird pilgrimage to see Benal. I can't believe it. I'm I'm stunned that anyone would want to drive that far to meet me and take me out for beers, but I appreciate it. And of course, that means that all you folks out there, the, the imitations out there, who wants to drive up to BOA HQ and uh, go out for beers? <laughs> who will make the next pilgrimage to visit me and get me drunk? Uh, this is going to turn out bad, very bad. Here are the ways to contact me if you want to uh, be included in the loop. You can shoot me an email at boaaudio at hotmail.com or go to banalofamerica.com and click the contact button. And, of course, the final method is the interactive zone we like to call BOA's Paranormal Playground. Of course, we're talking about the usofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. Get on over there, talk about the newest episodes of BOA Audio, pop culture, and the paranormal as well. Plus, if you're into the whole social networking thing, of course, I am on Twitter and Facebook, so punch in Benal on their search engine, you'll find me right away. Befriend me, follow me, or poke me, it's all good, and I'd be happy to have you as part of our circle of friends. Up next, of course, it is time to thank the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff, Leslie Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, our contributing cartoonist, Andy Carollin, and our webmaster, Jeremy Boston. Up at BOA, since the last time you heard from me, Regan Lee digs up an old Gray Barker article and dissects it in Trickster's Realm. Leslie reflects on this summer so far in a column titled Summer Esoterica. The paranormal apostate Bruce Pretty reveals that he is a hardcore Superman fan, and Tony Morrill looks at the problems surrounding the extraterrestrial hypothesis in ETH or BUST, a new column as part of Fortean Ramblings. So four new columns at BOA, tons more in the till as well. Head on over to Banal of America and read the stories from the mind-bending BOA staff. Now comes the time where I ask you to heed a certain call, and that is, of course, the call for donations. We always could use your help here at Banal of America. It is a massive enterprise, and we have designs on growing it more and more as the months and years proceed. So we're going to need your help if we can make that happen. How can you do that? Simple. Go to banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com, and click the PayPal button. It's right there on the left-hand side of the screen. I'm looking at it right now. Or if you don't want to use PayPal, you don't trust the Internet, and who really does nowadays, then you can donate via snail mail to our P.O. Box. And here is the address for that. Tim Benal, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass, 01866. Spell Pinehurst, P-I-N-E-H-U-R-S-T. Hopefully by now you know how it works, but if you don't, please include an email address with your correspondence so I can send you an email back saying thanks, and if you make a donation, 
please make it payable to Tim Benal and not Benal of America, because my back is anal. Actually got a really cool letter from someone the other day who's going to be at the Exeter UFO Festival. So let me just plug that as well while we're here in sort of the uh, plug area of the program. We're coming up on it real quick. It is Saturday, September 3rd in Exeter, New Hampshire, talking about the third annual Exeter UFO Festival. I'll be serving as MC. Speakers include Stanton Friedman, Richard Dolan, Kathleen Martin, as well as a film on the Betty and Barney Hill abduction case. And best of all, folks, it is absolutely 100% free. That's right, no cost. Find a way to get to Exeter and you can check out the proceedings. Just walk right through the door at the Town Hall in Exeter, New Hampshire. This is an amazing event. I love it every year. I'm humbled and honored to be the host once again for the big event. It is a blast. Last year we had a ton of people there. Word of mouth, I think, is going to drive this thing even bigger this year. I've heard from tons of folks, as I said just now, just wrote me a letter, some guy, saying he was going to be at the Exeter UFO Festival with his buddies, couldn't wait to meet up. So hopefully the BOA Audio listeners are there and representing BOA Nation. If you are, find me, shake my hand, please, I hope. And, uh, you know, you don't obligate to buy me a beer, but if you see me out on the town, come on over stop by, say hello, let me know you're a listener of the program. It would be awesome to hear from all the folks out there. The website for the big event is www.exeterufofestival.com, E-X-E-T-E-R-U-F-O-Festival.com. Check it out, folks. The third annual Exeter UFO Festival. Be there or be square. Next time on the program, our guests are going to be longtime BOA Audio friends, Marie Jones and Larry Flaxman. Every year we sit down with these two kooky, kooky folks and have just a wild conversation. This year is no different. We are going to be talking about the Trinity secret at the beginning of the show, but it just devolves into a jam session and really just a grouse session on the state of ghost hunting and the ghost research field. So if you like that kind of stuff, if you like us bitching about ghost hunters, you're going to love this conversation. It was a lot of fun. Marie Jones, Larry Flaxman, always a fun time when they show up on the program. We get tons of emails from folks who love those annual installments. Well, you're in luck because we've got one coming at you next time on BOA Audio. And on that note, let's close the book on this installment of the program. Once again, thanks to Larry Arnold for coming on the show, giving us so much time and really teaching us so much about the weirdness that is spontaneous human combustion. Thanks to Stephen, Andy, and Steph for their contributions to BOA Audio listener feedback. And, of course, big, big thanks to all you folks out there, the hardcore BOA Audio listeners, the people who do not press stop until the program ends. You guys are awesome. Thank you for listening to me all this time. I know it's been a rough go of it so far here in Season 6, but come on. How about that spontaneous human combustion episode? Listen, folks, I know sometimes you're going to have to wait two weeks, maybe three weeks for an episode of the program, but when BOA Audio delivers, we deliver the goods, and I stand by that. Hopefully, a conversation like what you've just heard has proven in a way to all you guys out there that this program just keeps chugging along, and we've got some amazing plans for the future, and that is, of course, thanks to all you people out there, the hardcore BOA Audio listeners and the BOA Audio listening audience in general. You guys are the fuel that drives the machine. I cannot thank you enough for your support of the program. 
obviously, thank you for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. And until next time, this is Tim Benall, signing off.